This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with the gang. The gang's all here. I even arrived. Un- By the way, great news. The uh, car that I didn't know if I liked, I like now. <gasps> I like it a lot. Why? It's just fast and furious. furious. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, the furious is me. The fast, my car. Super fast. Liking it. Anyway, don't want to digress. Because <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. But you start with one. Good job. I don't, I don't want to get in trouble. With what? How fast my car is. Oh, yeah. You Whoa. don't want to admit to anything. No. Speaking of digressions. Mm-hmm. This is the second morning in a row, no breakfast. Wow. I went back to that donut place, which shall <laughs> remain unnamed. Which has, has was closed yesterday. And was closed again, even though it said that they were going to open at a certain time. Well, why would you? Didn't happen. I know, but it wasn't open yesterday. And it wasn't open today. So you know what I would do is give that dream up. I think I, I, I went to... I went to Yelp, and I gave them a one-star review. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And I Real. called them out. I said, such and such employee or such you. and such business, either have your employees get there earlier or change wow. your start time. That That's was... reasonable, right? Could you buy donuts the night before? Plan I couldn't ahead. last night because I went to a movie that got out at like 11.15. So, oh, yeah. Right, right. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. By the way, um, the president's on his way to Asia. Yeah. This is a... 12 you, days. I know. Do you notice there, that when he leaves, there's like this sigh of relief? <sighs> His staff is very concerned about the uh, stamina of a 71-year-old. Why? Trudging He's, around Asia. Oh, no, he'll be fine. They're also concerned of what possibly he could say at any that moment. I would worry about. <laughs> I would be terrified about that. I wouldn't worry about his stamina. They're, they're kind of concerned about he's... There, actually, there's a couple. There's a there's a huge like Asian region conference going on. Yeah, yeah. that world leaders will be yeah, at. And yeah, yeah. He's gonna come home early because you know. No, there'll be. No, there, he's coming home early. He's not gonna go to the conference. He's not. No. Well, that's what Rex Tillerson's for. Well, yeah, but Send I mean, Rex to the you have presidents and as we talked about chief potentates because that's kind of the yeah. all-encompassing mm-hmm. label yeah the chief potentate they're all going to this conference and he's Makes just gonna me hungry go. yeah potentate potentate oh, sounds like potato with chips syrup, syrup on them mm. <laughs> um but the problem is he's still gonna golf not the problem but he's the, gonna he, golf with golf. uh was it shinzo abe from japan oh yeah cool go hang out with abe Didn't shinzo just get reelected. Uh, I think he got reelected. Or was that like, China? The, oh, I don't know. Maybe the Chinese guy had him. Uh, the was Xi Jinping. He had yeah. to almost rewrite what their equivalent of a constitution, almost making him emperor. Oh wow! His power is almost. He's almost like, a potentate. You can't stop him. Yeah, but mm. I mean, they chose to do that. So, but you know, if, because if not, he would have been an impotentate. And we talked about yesterday, and that could be That's an issue. Right. And there's things you can do for that. <laughs> Check into yesterday's show. Just go, just go to BYU In Japan, radio.org. Ivanka, yeah. She, oh, yeah. she was there. She's delivering, uh, uh, she's at a conference about yeah. uh, women in the workplace right. and things of that nature. So she speaks on that. They have an all-women security force to protect oh, her. that is cool. And then when Melania comes yeah. with, with uh, the president, they'll have a, that, that same uh, all-women tr- yeah. 
force of police to protect yeah. them. Did you know that I, I used to have? Like, I don't know if you guys know my my uh, great uncle Charlie Townsend. No. Yeah, he used to have three. Is this a real person? Yeah, three angels. Okay. He had three Chuck. angels. His name's Chuck. Charles Town, Charlie Townsend, uh, and he had three angels, and they called him Charlie's Angels. Oh, is that what it is? And ah. his name was Charlie Townsend. Yeah. He was... had his own little special forces. So you never saw him then? You just heard him on a speaker? I, it was, he was the weirdest uncle ever. It was a weird speaker uh-huh. box from Radio Every Shack. time a speaker box showed up at our house, we're like, oh, Uncle Charles is here. <laughs> uncle Chuck, we call him. Uncle Chucky. It is a little. never make it to any of the reunions. I miss old Chuck. Seat at Thanksgiving, just a box on the yeah. table. They, in fact, uh, Charlie's Angels. Angels, could you pass the potatoes, please? He didn't talk like a robot. Yeah. Oh, sorry. He had more feeling, more emotion. It was family. He was was just a great laugh. And those were my first girlfriends. Oh, nice. Yep. Just watching TV, huh? Yep. (laughs) Just me and my 24-inch box. Yeah. With fake wood paneling on it. I had one of those. Yeah. It looked classy. Mm -hmm. Was yours black and white or color? I had both. Oh, you were rich. The color was the big screen, right? Yeah. That was in the... Could you have imagined... The black and white was in the bedrooms. Could you have... I know, yeah. Black, then, you don't need color in the And then bedrooms. later, later when I was a teenager, the black and white migrated to the shed, and we plugged it into cable. Mm. And then it blew up, because that's just oh, too yeah. much juice. But can you imagine back then if you could have seen just an iPhone? It would have blown your mind. Oh, man. And to think you could just have that in your hand? Yeah. 24 inches, too. That was, that was uh, big league. Back then. I think we, in our living room, we had even a bigger one. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Those were the days, too, when parents could catch you just by touching the television to see, were you watching TV when I was gone? No. (laughs) Why is it overheating? So uh, the president's gone or going, and um, it just does seem like there's a... stop off in Hawaii first. Oh, well, yeah. Who wouldn't? Why not? You're out It seems like there's a breath of relief because people are like, okay, we can just, everyone can kind of relax, except Jeff Sessions. We can let our guts out. Just, just let it go. Oh, baby. <sighs> just let, yeah, it's like loosening your belt after Thanksgiving. Let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else is going on around the country? Attorney General Jeff Beauregard Sessions <laughs> yeah. shut down proposals by George Papadopoulos at the Trump campaign. And Vladimir Putin should meet. Both NBC and CNN reported this on Thursday. Papadopoulos, he's a former foreign policy um, advisor to the Trump yeah. campaign. That Coolest name since Stephanopoulos. That Trump later called the coffee boy, oh, basically. Yeah. He just kind of got coffee. No one really knew who Nobody he was. Nobody knew who he was. There's but... all this video of him praising him at oh, really? campaign events. Well, but he made yeah. great coffee. Uh, they, Papadopoulos made the proposal to a Trump campaign meeting in March 2016. Sessions, a Trump campaign surrogate at the time, was present and reportedly rejected the suggested Russian meeting, a Russian meeting after Trump declined to rule it out. Sessions, however, did not disclose this information to Congress during his Senate confirmation hearing uh, for Attorney General or during his testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee. At the Senate Judiciary hearing last month, the Attorney General told Senator Lindsey Graham that he had, quote, not seen anything that would indicate collusion with the Russians to impact the campaign. Hmm. Even though he was in a meeting, he said, I don't think we should meet with Vladimir Putin, even though there was the option was there. So again, another... Contact with Russians. It's like the sixth or seventh. You know what it is. What? But this is the D. This is the DOJ guy. It's his accent. Yeah, it might be. It, it might makes be him right. sound wholesome yeah. and folksy, mm-hmm. and people. Yeah. Oh, it's just Beauregard. He's fine. <laughs> Cute old Beauregard. Yeah, I'm convinced that's what it is because 
six times? I think that's what it is. Well, it's just, there was a couple times where it's like the Russian ambassador, and he was unclear if was he a Russian or not. And it's like yeah. the Russian ambassador is Russian. Well, yeah, Keep that you know. I mean, that one's sure. Yeah, but like, yeah, none of them. Mm, yeah, none of them like came out and just announced themselves no. as a Russian. This one was pretty, like, should we go meet with Vladimir Putin? Mm, Trump yeah. wouldn't rule it out. Sessions said probably not. We shouldn't do that. Well, hold, hold, hold. But, and then he didn't, but which Vladimir Putin? The. Oh, not one like, and only. Yeah, no, okay. Doesn't no. he have an impersonator? Mm-hmm. Somebody to double for him? Sure, a body double. double, like Melania, apparently. Yeah, he's in trouble. That was last week. That's old news. Um, moving on. On Thursday night around 7 p.m. Eastern, the unthinkable happened. What? The Twitterer-in-chief disappeared from his beloved platform. Yeah. President Trump's verified real Donald Trump account briefly went offline. Anyone who navigated to his feed was given a generic blue landing page that read, Sorry, that page doesn't exist. And in a stunning plot twist, the world, the world later learned it wasn't a glitch, but the work of a Twitter employee on his or her last day of work. Initially, blew it up. initially, one of the social media sites' uh, verified accounts said Trump was uh, his feed was inadvertently deactivated due to human error. But a couple hours later, Twitter announced further investigations revealed a Twitter customer support employee did this on the employee's last day. Trump tweeted Thursday morning, "I guess the word must finally be getting out and having an impact." The company said it's conducting a full internal review of the incident. Well, I didn't know that. I mean, one person can just flip a switch and turn you off. Apparently. Wow, that's power. And they turned off the president of the United States. Yeah. And so people the... were speculating, was he president when his Twitter account was inactive? For those 11 mm. minutes. Did Mike Pence have to step in to assume leadership? Could, but could Mike Pence step in and tweet yeah, well, like at the same level? What's the president legal Trump? ramifications of this? Mm. Other people had just people like walking around like just lighting fires and blowing things up cuz that's what it sounds like you're, you're walking out the door so excited. towards the place senator elizabeth warren on thursday backed former democratic national committee chief donna brazil's assessment that the 2016 democratic primary was rigged in favor of hillary clinton oh wow and against bernie sanders appearing on cnn warren said the dnc's new chair tom perez is either going to succeed by bringing bernie sanders and bernie sanders representatives into this process or he's going to fail Warren's comments follow Brazil's assertion, published Thursday by Politico, that she found proof that the primary was rigged in Clinton's favor, a fundraising agreement between Clinton and the Clinton campaign and the DNC that was reached long before the former Secretary of State won the Democratic nomination. Now, the way it works is once the, uh, once the candidate becomes the nominee, then their campaign kind of takes over the operations and fundraising oh, wow, activity yeah. of the, uh, the National Committee. Well, apparently that agreement was done a year beforehand. Well, and did you hear why? With Hillary Clinton. Apparently, President Obama had left uh, the DNC with a lot of debt. Yes. So the DNC was trying to make up for all this debt, and who could make up more debt than Hillary Clinton? So she came in, I guess, a year earlier mm-hmm. and basically took her rightful position, according to some, right, uh, and started paying off debt. But then they're, they actually still are carrying debt. So right. Donna Brazil goes in and she can't believe how much debt they're in. How come she got it so early? That's a big deal. Bernie Sanders was ripped off. 
Right. But Bernie wasn't supposed to be successful. Well, Bernie. challenging. Yeah. He was just Bernie's supposed to Bernie's that kinda, crazy guy that no yeah. one paid attention to, but everyone was wanting to pay attention so to. So he kind of messed up the whole Holy system God. there. And you remember, his campaign was saying this. Yes, they were claiming it was rigged, and people, oh, it's just kind of sour grapes and yes. all this. Now, the interesting part is, remember, Donna Brazil was involved in the uh, sharing CNN questions Question for debates gate. with yeah. Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. She did that later. So she's saying now in her book that she was broken hearted and really dismayed by these findings but then she went ahead and was like handing Still questions giving. to Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. Donna so is this selling books or yes. are we really like yes and it dismayed? was that messed up and apparently everybody knew yeah apparently it was common knowledge <laughs> and yet every one amongst, of them amongst you know certain circles yeah so it just I think it kind of shows that politics can be dirty. So where did Russia come into that? Yeah, they well that's when they hacked into their servers. Okay. And we're going to find out they're going to try to probably possibly within the next year charge six Russians with oh, doing that, okay, breaking good. into the servers. In, so we'll in, see what that in goes. In a couple of years, yeah. Yeah. And finally, yes. the, the ratings are in okay. for the World Series. Okay, let's hear this. 28 million viewers tuned in to see the Houston Astros win their first World Series title, defeating the L.A. Dodgers. Sorry, Jeff. <coughs> yeah. The, the number was actually down 30% what? Really? year over year, but that's because last year was historic and it was the Cubs. Well, this is historic, too. They've never won the World Series at all. Yeah, but the Dodgers were there. Well, the yeah. Dodgers haven't won in 28, yeah, 29 years. But it was the Dodgers. I think it was Mary Hart. She blew it. She jinxed it. Well, she had ratings problems back in the day, and now she's got ratings problems again. They did say pretty strong numbers for a game that wasn't close. Right? 28 yeah, million 20 people. Million it was the a... worst game of the series. Again, sorry, Jeff. No, and I'm not the only one. That, I mean, you talked to Spencer and Jeremy. They yeah. felt the same way. Yeah. So I, I, mean, I, I like the game. Because I turned it on, it was five nothing. I went, eh, and then when did yeah, something but it was else? Boring. Yeah, but it was the kind of game that you could get other work done. Yeah, and then you come back at the end and you see everyone like, "Yay, we won!" Yay, get a, yeah. give a trophy. It was no game two or game five. Let's just no. Say. Let's say that the sure. the entire 2017 series, which had its fair share of exciting and crazy moments, averaged 18 million viewers over seven games. So it averaged 18 million viewers. Is that good? Game, I guess. Can what? I get some perspective? What are like Super Bowl numbers? in the 27s and 30s. Wow. So this was really good. and uh, But it was still beating, I guess, football, Monday Night Football or whatever. Sure. It better have. It's just some game. Yeah. That's interesting. So, uh, okay, good ratings. That's good. That's good for baseball. That'll keep it alive for another year. <laughs> It'll come back. Oh, how fun is that? Hey, we've got to remember daylight savings time, folks. Fall back. We Fall get an back. extra hour. That's what they say. Sunday, by the way, Sunday night, you're going to want to do this. At 2 a.m. on Sunday, the change happens. So we need to wake up get, wake up yeah. at 2 a.m., yeah. switch our Set clocks. Set your alarms for 1.59 a.m. Go to the microwave, oh. the oven, the uh, yeah. thermometer outside that doesn't really work. Yeah. Go everywhere. Then your car. Terry has a comment. Just to digress real quick. Okay. Do you dare do that with us? Super Bowl ratings. Mm. Okay. So 28 was the world final World Series game. Yeah. Game seven. February 5th, 2017, Super Bowl got a 45. Whoa. Now so who was like in that? Double. What's the last Super Bowl? Oh, oh the Patriots last one. Last and the who's it's. In 2016, it was a 46. 2015, wow. it was a 47. 2014, it was a 46. So it's double. 
This year it'll be a 45. I think it'll be down a little bit? Because of the knee thing. Okay. So, like, still the Super Bowl reigns supreme, but, again, it's like that one night where as a series – you know, you got seven games. It kind of spreads it out. So what what does the Bachelor get? I mean, I think if we want real twelves, maybe, maybe yeah. Depending on wow. if it's a, if it's an important night, like if it's the big night where he gives the final rose or whatever. Yeah, maybe My, people were watching the World Series for Mary Hart. Ah, well, yeah, they were but, tuning in to see her. Yeah, the eight Hart family not members. have any indication. Okay. I don't. I think Mary's great. I don't want to disparage. Do you like daylight savings being so late in the year? No. My wife was complaining because, like Halloween, it didn't get dark till later in the evening. Yeah. And she goes, "The whole part of Halloween that's fun is it's dark." Yeah. And you're walking down the sidewalk, and there's something weird coming up the street, and you don't know what it is. Oh, yeah. it's just the guy down the See, street. See, but at my but... age, you don't want a lot of dark things walking around at night in right. front of your car. Well, yeah, you, you have a hard enough time seeing during the day walking down the street. Yeah. she did. My wife did say she almost got hit while she was out with my boy trick-or-treating. Really? But she did look down and see that she was wearing a like a black black hoodie type sweatshirt, yeah. black pants, mm-hmm. black shoes. Wasn't she? She probably thought she needed to maybe think safer on her part. Not necessarily the, the car needed to slow down a little bit. Oh no, for sure. But she needed to wear. She something. also yeah. was in the wrong. <laughs> yeah, she was <laughs> she blending was into the natural costume. environment. So. Hey, last night I spent. I I, I spoke to uh, at a woman's conference at a mother's conference. Really? How did it that was, go? It was awesome. Did you share this? And it's a patriotic mother's conference. Did you share the story about the mom who strapped their kid to the roof of the minivan to hold the pool? Oh, I forgot that. Thought maybe that'd be good, you know. No, I didn't share that See what that they one. thought about Wait, it. Wait, why, why was it a patriotic event? Because it's the American Mother's Conference. So oh, wow. it's so Oh, the it's, AMA. Wait, AMC. <laughs> yeah, it's the AMC. And um, but it was it was really very it was actually very patriotic and I thought that I sat and thought Wow, God bless America that we have mm. mothers and that we care about America where you can be free. Mm. And then I look at my news feed and yep. I find five more stories of women being abused or harassed. Yep. Mm. The sexual harassment stuff is off the chart. One of, by one, members of Congress now are yeah. saying they, it's happened on the on the floor of the the House and the Senate. They've had these yeah. interactions with male colleagues. And then uh, who was it that just oh made comment? Um, the guy that plays Trump. Just uh, who's the guy that plays Alec Trump on Baldwin? This? Alec Baldwin just came out saying it's a generational thing. There was a generation that just doesn't and hasn't taken care uh, and, and of it, women, and, and I it, wonder if it is generational. An interesting one that just came out the last couple of days is I believe it's the news editor at NPR. Mm. Oh, that's right. Mm. He's been accused by several members of the staff of doing things. And then now, so he's like been. I guess I'm, I think he's been suspended. I don't know Has if he's he? active, but like this, the president, the guy that runs NPR, is now trying to talk about it. They're going to have an all hands meeting. Yeah. So he just takes all Actually, the questions. Actually, I have a handsless meeting. He did an interview on NPR about this, and the female host apparently just roasted him. Really? Whoa. <laughs> So Not because to, what did you what, what did you know? Yeah, why, why did, did you, you know stop it? it? That kind of those types of questions. So. Not to make light of it, but I would imagine the meeting would have sounded something like this: "Thank you all for coming to this all hands on deck meeting." <laughs> why would you get? Why would you think it would sound like that? It's just very close so, to the mic and oh, intimate. because of NPR and it's yes. how NPR likes to. Yeah, that's how they do it. It's not. Everybody fell asleep in that <laughs> meeting. <laughs> they don't fall asleep at their own style. Sure, they do. No, it'd be like, you know, we doesn't do- your voice ever put you to sleep? 
No, but my wife says <laughs> totally. She's like, will you say something for a few minutes? <laughs> I am so tired. Um, it's a, it really is. a. It's. I think it's a really good thing that's happening um, with so many women reporting. I mean, it's it's got Hollywood terrified. It's got D.C. terrified. Do you, do you think there's any danger in this, though? Do you think there's well, any danger that there might be some women that are coming forward with any inkling of anything? Maybe, that... yeah. But but you know what, though? Think of how many of these women you've never heard about. But apparently it's everybody in Hollywood knew stuff was going on. Everybody in D.C. knows stuff's going on, but no yeah. one ever says anything. So I hate to be a cynic, but it's, yeah. it's, it's possible that – Women might see that this or or men, for that matter, yeah, yeah. might see this as an opportunity like, now, how far back can I dig, even if it didn't yeah. really affect them? No, well, except if, you know, something has to change to get people talking about yeah. it. And for apparently ever, we haven't been talking enough about it. And then Bill Cosby comes along and it almost seems like this shocking, earth shattering story. And now, one by one, yeah. another another famous person is is uh, is taking the fall. I mean, it's hard. And you saw with President uh, Bush, um, Herbert Walker Bush was you know alleged that's a good to example touched inappropriately. And but again, there's still things that are appro- it doesn't matter even how old you are or how uncomfortable it is. There's just things that even if it's accidental, you probably ought to say sorry. Yeah. I don't mean to make light yeah. of it. No, or, I, mean, I get it. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. But again, boy, let's figure out, is this, it can't just be generational. I hope it's, I hope though we're all learning that you can't treat people like that. Especially when you're in such a weird power position that you're, you're their livelihood, you make their financial decisions. It's a big deal. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about how Facebook uh, may have uh, been had a, had a really big part not only in the election but in uh, in the Russian issue and also in getting people elected. Did you know that there were Facebook employees that were working for the elections, and uh, each each party had someone on board? Is that is that the right process? We'll talk about it up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, be the good in the world. Facebook's role during the 2016 presidential election has come under extraordinary scrutiny in recent weeks. Most notably, attention has swirled around a Kremlin-backed troll farm's purchase of $100,000 worth of ads on a platform during the election cycle. This came on the heels of controversies over the proliferation of fake news during the campaign. So here to talk with us about how Facebook and other players may have played a role in the election is Shannon McGregor. Shannon is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Texas Austin School um, and uh, assistant professor at the Department of Communications at the University of Utah. Shannon, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. So, boy, oh boy, has it uh, has the light started to to shine, I guess, in one way or another on Facebook. I'm sure it's something that they're not necessarily loving um, is is what's is kind of the, the information behind this. Talk to us about your research. What did you find out about Facebook, Google and Twitter when it comes to electoral politics? 
Um, right. So one of the things in the course of uh, interviewing folks who worked on the 2016 uh, primary presidential bids, um, we, my colleague Daniel Kreiss and I, who's at UNC, were interviewing uh, the digital director of the Rand Paul campaign, and he was talking about how um, they flew out uh, upon an invite from Google to the Mountain View offices and had this ideation session, Mm. um, talking about the different types of uh, content and strategies that might specifically help Rand Paul. And we were both like, whoa, that's a lot more involvement than we had thought about. And what resulted from that ended up being his one day, like the day long live feed that he did. Okay. So that sort of changed our research direction. Because what we were surprised about was sort of the routine nature of the interaction between folks at these technology firms and the people working inside the presidential campaigns. And so then we continued to interview folks who worked on those campaigns and then also did interviews with people who worked on the political teams at Facebook, at Google, at Twitter. And what we find basically is that there's a lot more very routine interaction between people at these firms and people working on presidential campaigns than had previously really been widely known. It wasn't a secret, you know, it wasn't nefarious or anything, but there was a lot more going on, Um, you know, sort of the most extreme example of it is what has come out. Um, Gary Kobe told me, who was the, uh, worked as the digital director for the Trump campaign, um, and then Brad Parscale also said this in his interview on 60 Minutes, that, that staffers from Google, from Facebook and Twitter were actually in the offices in uh, Trump's general campaign in San Antonio, working Holy hand in hand uh, on their digital effort. They had the, they called them embeds. They were embedded into the campaign. Right. That is – was that – did the Clintons did, – did President – or uh, not President – did um, <laughs> did candidate Clinton have em- embeds as, re- as well? They did not. One of the things, though, that's important is these technology firms offered the same levels of support to all campaigns, and they offer similar things to non-political advertisers as well. Um, and there was, in this case, a very different uptake. So the Trump campaign going into the general election um, was relatively understaffed uh, mm-hmm. compared to previous general election campaigns. And so they welcomed this staffing um, because they didn't have as many of their own uh, digital staffers, whereas the Clinton campaign was very well built out um, and has, you know, had a pretty deep bench of very experienced people in digital campaigning. And so they still, you know, took a lot of advice from the folks in these firms, and they still, you know, obviously bought a lot of advertising from them um, and did a lot of campaigning on their sites, but they didn't um, have the embeds, quote-unquote, in the same way that the Trump campaign did. And th- this really, though, is about money, right? I mean, because the, Google would love an embed or Facebook would love an embed in the in the – on the Trump team because they would spend more money. Right. And so what we find in talking to people who worked in the campaign and talking to people who work at these technology firms is they have several, these technology firms have several motivations for working so closely with these presidential campaigns. Um, Like you said, one of the main motivations is money, right? The closer you work, the more likely these uh, campaigns are to spend advertising dollars and that's what they want, right? They're right. companies and they want to make money. <clears throat> we also find that they do it because of the, you know, very large audiences that are paying attention, especially in this case, to the U.S. presidential election. So to the fact that, you know, firms like Facebook and Google and Twitter can be 
a part of something that's this big is good for them as well. Um, and then we also find that they do it to facilitate um, relationships in service of, you know, future lobbying efforts. Campaigns and candidates become elected officials, become presidents, right? And so having a good relationship with the people um, <clears throat> around the candidate who become an elected official is important as well for them. Now, is this why you are studying it as a communications Professor, I mean, we we've probably never had media sources embed into into campaigns, have they? As consultants, like we've never had. I'm, I'm assuming NBC embed into a campaign in order to consult them on how to use NBC's media. Right. Yes. This is quite different, um, and this is one of the one of the things that's coming up in these hearings that have been going on you know, before the House and Senate Intelligence Committee is the need for different types of transparency and disclosure around political advertising on the Internet. Um, A, there needs to be some. Right now, there's basically none at all. You know, television ads, as you said, are they're regulated. Um, If you place a political ad on television, that ad has to be made public. Um, you know, who paid for it has to be on the ad, and there's some regulation around that. There's no such regulation currently in place around ads that appear, political ads that appear on the Internet. Um, and so right now there's a, a bill in the Senate proposed that would require these ads, you know, the content of the ads to be made available, um, that whoever paid for it would have to be disclosed. And then importantly, in this case, also who was targeted. Because this is something that these um, digital platforms offer that television doesn't, is an increased level right. of targeting. Um, one of the things that the folks in the Trump campaign told me when I was interviewing them was that, that in, you know, in working with Facebook, that they had figured out towards the end of the campaign the ability to do this very um, high level and fast sort of A-B testing. So showing me and you different ads and seeing which little thing made us pay attention to them more or Mm. made us click on it more. And um, they were running up to 40 to 50,000 different iterations of these ads a day on Facebook. Um, And Brad Parscale said in his 60 Minutes interview that on the day of the last debate, I think they ran over 100,000 different iterations of the ad. Holy cow. Disclosing these is very important, but is going to be a massive undertaking right. when you look at the scale compared to television advertising. Well, but 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 that in a way in a way that's you know that's the secret sauce, right? I mean, that's David Axelrod, isn't that? Aren't some of those? I mean, I guess I don't know because it's it's proprietary. How I mean, it has to be moral, it has to be ethical, but um, right. isn't some of this the secret sauce that? you don't want to disclose. Exactly. I mean, this is why, you know, Facebook and Google in particular are able to make so much money off advertising because of the ability that they have to target ads to us based on the data that they have about us. You know, what do they know about us because of what we like and what we read and who we're friends with? And that's important to advertisers. It helps them target, not just political advertisers, right? What type of shoes I might buy or (laughs) what type of, you know, beverage I'm going to buy and put in my fridge. Right. Um, And so, yeah, exactly. This is a bit their secret sauce. But in the wake of the election, you know, there's been some uh, 
some work that has shown that in some cases, because this is so automated, of course, right, it's at a scale that can't be done at a human level because of the number of people on these platforms, that there are some very concerning targeting as well. It was a, a ProPublica investigation showed that uh, in buying ads on Facebook, you could target uh, for people who are anti-Semitic. And that was a right. way in which you could say, I want to target people who are anti-Semitic. And that's, con- that's concerning, right? Totally. That's very problematic. Yeah. But it's amazing, too. They have that data. Now, talk about the numbers, because um, I, I, get, I get a variety of different numbers. Uh, how much money was spent during, I guess, the political cycles um, to, uh, in this targeted advertising? So the the numbers are hard to parse out because of the way that they're reported to the FEC. But the best reporting that I've seen, and this was in a, a peer-reviewed study, was that in the course of the presidential campaign, uh, $1.1 billion of paid digital advertising was spent during the cycle. Boy. Some of that is not, you know, not all on Facebook or Google. Some of that may be, you know, email as well. But that's the best breakdown of it that I've seen. In comparison to the, you know, $100,000 or $50,000 that we've seen reported paid by these Russian troll farms, um, the, you know, the spending by the actual campaigns in our country dwarfed that outside spending. Um, that doesn't mean it's not very concerning and that we don't need to do something about, you know, the interference from outside actors in our elections. It's just that that the amount of money and the people that were potentially, you know, viewing these ads is dwarfed by what was actually spent by folks in the campaign, mm. in the campaign. Yeah. But and again, boy, you can imagine if the Russians had taken their ideas and spent, you know, 50 million, it would have even been more disruptive. I mean, right, how, how exactly. crazy. Yeah. Uh, what do you – it's also interesting, and I guess this is part of the reason you're, there's the cry for transparency is um, these companies have a, a, a disproportionate amount of power and um, like a Mark Zuckerberg and, and um, so, some of these people could even run for president. And so what how, – how on earth could you ever really know what's going on when they have corporate walls and, and – just, you know, inform people that are behind the scenes at Facebook that really know how to use their algorithms and, and, and the machinery. Is there any way to fully protect yourself or the country? I think that this is what we're finally sort of coming to grips with in the wake of this election and in the wake of news about, you know, Russian interference in our elections through these platforms is just how central they are to our social but also political lives. Um, and yet, their companies, right? And so their goals are not necessarily the same as our democratic goals as, you know, in a market democracy, this is attention always. Um, And so this is why transparency is so important. um, And this is why, you know, hopefully the outcome of these hearings and of some of the legislation um, being proposed in Congress right now will go through. But this is going to be a massive undertaking to, to go through this type of transparency, to really wrestle with the type of data that these different firms have about us. Um, and at the scale that it is, is going to require some rethinking of this idea um, that the algorithms that underlie these platforms are, quote unquote, neutral. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is what this is what firms like Facebook and Google have tried to argue for a while. You know, we're not media companies. We don't make editorial choices. We're just platforms. Well, 
that's a harder argument to make when, you know, yeah. like Russian troll farms have been using your platform to try and influence our election. So now there's this moment where they're going to have to grapple with the fact that they are going to have to make decisions about the content that's on their sites, and they are going to take responsibility for what's on it. But what does that look like, and how can it be done at a scale that makes sense, given you know the billions of people that are on Facebook and Google? Mm. And so it's it's going to be very interesting to watch how they try and figure that out, and and what role that our government as a regulatory force can play in that. And and what do you think? Because there has been a lot of uh, pushback on the fact that Congress, uh, many of them that are on these committees don't seem to understand Facebook anyway or uh, some of the some of the nuances of social media. Um, I mean, it really seems like it's it's really a cutting edge problem. And do you, do you think we've as a government and as Congress oversight, are they geared? Are they set up appropriately to actually even deal with it? I think enough of them are. I think some people, it did appear in the hearing, sort of don't understand exactly how it works. But I think there are, you know, enough of enough people in Senate and Congress that understand it. And more importantly, that they have, you know, advisors who are experts in this that are, you know, that are helping them with this information. Thank heavens. It is going to be, right. But it is, you know, it's a new problem. You know, this is a problem at us because of the scale of the size of these technology firms, because of the size of the user bases on them, because of the way that they are deeply woven into our daily and social lives. This is a problem at a scale that I think we have not faced in a very long time. Um, but, you know, we're not the first people to face this problem. There have been different types of regulations in, um, you know, in some countries in Europe that we can look to for some guidance about how to at least begin to regulate these firms in a way that helps make sense for our democracy. Yeah. Now, obviously, they, they were able to reach people. They were able to then send messages. It sounds like the messages were incredibly targeted because of all the testing they had done on the messaging. So do you have any idea the actual impact it had on the voters and on the election? And is there any way to ever really know? Um, Unfortunately, the answer is no. Um, You know, there have been, of course, you know, I have very smart colleagues in in communication and political science who um, try and test, you know, the causal effect of seeing ads on on social media. But, you know, that's a that's hard to do anyway. And that's especially hard to do when what we're exposed to on social media is so individualized. Right. Right. What type of ad that you saw during the election is likely completely different than what type of ad I saw, especially when I was in Texas during the election. Right. Right. And so it's so individualized. And also, we don't have a grasp of how much what we see. You know, if you think about how much time you spend on Facebook, on Twitter, you know, Googling things during the day. For some people, like me probably, that's a lot. And so does that mean that I'm seeing so much that these ads, if I might have seen them, made a small impact because it's just one thing that I saw Mm -hmm. throughout the course of the day? Or does it mean that they had a great impact in a more sort of subconscious way because I'm just absorbing them as I'm also seeing, you know, a Facebook post from my mom <laughs> you know, yeah. or news from The New York Times and that it's all interwoven? And we're not really sure about that yet. Uh, what we do know from from research is that it's unlikely that these ads had a massive impact on the way people actually voted. That is unlikely. Hmm. Um 
it's very hard to persuade voters. <laughs> no, yeah. Right? And but it may have normalized it. Like, voters. can't you see, and it's kind of what you were just alluding to, that just just the the amount of information could normalize somebody where all of a sudden where before, you know, President or Donald Trump was just some actor, you know, kind of guy that will sell anything and put his name on anything. But then after thousands of ads just dropping by and stories here, I mean, it might normalize your brain to think, oh, yeah, it's just running for president. I mean, it just seems like over time it could shift you not necessarily to vote for him, but to normalize things. I think that's an absolutely fair point. And I think that's one of the interesting things that, you know, scholars and media and communication right now are trying to figure out is how do how does the way that we're exposed to news and information, which has changed so much in the last decade or even in the last five years, how does that affect us? You know, previous studies for a long time, we could, you know, measure how someone watched a TV show or how they read a newspaper and then, you know, ask them questions about what they thought. And that was pretty easy to suss out the effect there. But now it's so different, right? Even if you ask me a survey question, you know, where did you get your news? Well, what if I read a New York Times story on Facebook that my friend from high school shared? Who do I say that's from? Right. Is it? Did I get my news on Facebook? Did I get my news from the New York Times? Did I get my news from a friend? So even just in asking questions, that becomes increasingly complicated. You and I might answer that same question differently, even if we saw something the same way. So it's, so true. it's a really complicated thing to try and figure out. But we're working on it, I promise. Don't you? Don't, it just feels like it's the beginning of the end, Shannon. It's just over. Because I mean, this is like I, I joke, but th- this is this is a ton of data, a ton of information, a ton of influence, but not that much. But maybe influence on a subconscious level, and uh, and really, it's almost like we don't even know how to measure the influence. So, you're, I guess this is your new future, right? You've got to go figure out how to make sense of all of this. Yeah, you know, and we need a lot more information, you know, about how do people actually consume news? You know, what does that look like? How do they interpret things that come through their social feed? Um, You know, does it matter if it's who it's shared by? And people are starting to figure that out. But it's much more complex than, you know, say it was 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot of work to do. Well, we appreciate you uh, being on this, and keep 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 researching, keep writing as well. Uh, Shannon McGregor, thank you for your time. Again, you can go find out more about Shannon on her website, shannoncmcgregor.com, shannoncmcgregor.com. Boy, the tangled, tangled web of the interweb. It's, it's amazing. And how much does it influence? And when you think, too, the Russians, what, they spent like $100,000 compared to the $1 billion spent. It may not have been the big deciding factor, but uh, wouldn't it be interesting to know? And did you even know Facebook had people working on these these, uh, election campaigns? Crazy stuff. Well, we will continue the search and the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, during the break, we were talking about uh, the the fact is 
So 1.1 billion or so was spent. I think actually two billion total was spent on um, on campaigns. But here, there's the deal Terry and I were talking about. If if I want to influence a very targeted group in Alabama or Mississippi or Missouri, I don't need a million dollars. I just need ten thousand dollars, and then I will bombard that very targeted group, and it won't be a big group. But I can motivate them. I can excite them. I can animate them. And then I could get them to probably turn out to vote. But the what we're seeing with elections is you don't need everybody. No, you it, it, used to be mass, it used to be mass communication. Right. Now it's just very targeted group attack. They know where to target. They know certain states – this is going to go yeah. Republican. We're not we, going to focus we got, on them. We got to get Democrat. that group to fold. We got to get that group even to down move. to counties. They oh, know these boy. counties are vulnerable. They're in play. Let's let's just target our our ads to these people. So imagine that all you want to do is get the black vote to not turn out. Right. Then you would just go target that audience and start you know creating discouragement. There's no way you're going to win, all this stuff, you're done. I mean, you disparage and discourage, and it's over. And that could probably be done with a million dollars. Can we clarify, this is your strategy for real life, not for Townton Abbey, right? Oh, yeah. No, Townton, I've kind of, I have forgotten about Townton Abbey. Yeah, I think your citizens have felt that. Well, I, I've, I've appointed a, a sub-mayor. Deputy mayor. No, I call him sub-mayor. Sub-mayor? Wow. He's a substitute and he's sub. He's like below par. Mayor. Is President Trump below par no. in his golf game? I don't know. I think he's a really good golfer, so I bet he is. He may take the Kim Jong-un approach to golf. Blow it up? No, just that uh, <laughs> he shoots a perfect round every time. It's oh, the yeah. greatest golfer mm-hmm. in the world. I don't know if he goes that far. That sounds about right. I have heard that that's a, we just won't talk about it. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, you got to be careful, but there's not even restrooms on his golf course. Oh, wow. He doesn't need them. It's amazing. Well, they have those special uh, golf clubs that we don't really need to talk about. Thanks for bringing that up. Anyway, um, we we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue. Uh, we're we're going to we're going to continue enlightening you. We've got a lot of uh, news or important information. If you're thinking about buying an iPhone 10 X, 10 X, whichever, Just yeah, 10. <laughs> this is the Matt Townsend Show. So if you've been waiting for the new iPhone, uh, it's I think it's the time is now. The time is now. Is it a 10 or is it an X or is it both? Um, app, app, Apple would like to call you. Uh, my headphones are cutting out. That was fun. No, it was actually your voice. Is that what it was? Uh, so Apple would like you to call it 10. But um, it's turning into X. In their wonderful marketing approach, they use X. Yeah. So uh, they probably should have used 10 if they wanted you to say 10, but everyone's calling it the X because that's how it reads, iPhone right, X. Right, But they'd like you to say 10. So if you, well, whatever your preference. Well, the next one will exactly be a Y matter. and then a Z. That's great. Now, the low ball, the, the streamlined economy version of this phone yeah. is $999. 
Wow. And that's before $999. That's what it'll cost you. That, that's before taxes, before all the extra add-ons. Before the, taxes and all yeah. the extra add-ons. Is this going to continue? Or, yeah. mm-hmm. If you get the one that has 256 gigs, so the biggest amount of memory you can you can yeah. purchase, yeah. it is $1,149. Wow. For a phone. This is a phone. You're not driving it. They're creating exclusivity. <laughs> Yeah. Part of the thought some people have is the screen mm-hmm. is an OLED screen, which is a brighter, more vibrant screen. It's only made by Samsung. Thanks to Samsung. Right. And it's in limited supply. Yeah, right. So you limit the availability by so, raising a price to so the ridiculous really is, level. So this is the iPhone for the 1%. Oh, absolutely. Or those people who aspire to be the 1%. You can get it on the – there's like uh, installment plans mm-hmm. you can get. So it's like 40 bucks a month for the phone. A lot of people have so, priorities that are way out of whack, so yeah, I wouldn't totally. be surprised if people that can't afford this will afford it somehow. Now, some right. people have looked at it. If you break the screen, which is the most common thing that happens to a phone as you drop it and crack the screen, if you want it replaced, it'll cost you $279. Wow. Mercy. Whereas the iPhone 7, which is the phone that you have, Matt, yeah. it'll cost you $149. How would it handle Sheesh. a drop in the toilet? Well, that's what they probably listed as other damage. <laughs> They have that listed as $549. That's bacterial infection. <laughs> to fix your phone. Okay. So it's expensive. Don't drop your phone is kind of what they're saying. That's the rule, right? Yeah. Now, I, you could probably use that rule across all phones, whether it's an Android yeah, phone. Yeah, don't or be dropping whatever. it. Don't drop your phone. But in this case, really don't. Don't drop your phone. Drop or, your phone. You know, you're going to have to lose a child. You'll take out a loan. Yeah, maybe Sad day. get rid of a kid. So well, It's going to take some doing to get people to call it the iPhone 10 instead of the X. I, let's just call it X. What about the prospect of spending $1,000 on a product you haven't touched and have no idea how it works because there might be two or three videos that you can watch to give you a kind of Sold. Idea. Sold? <laughs> 1000 bucks. Go. Is it an Apple product? I'm going to buy it. Oh, boy. What's happening to us? Well, we will continue to uh, help you through your iPhone uh, selection process. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and buy a more expensive phone. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry and Jeff. The gang is gathered and uh, we're locked and loaded. It's Friday. And it's also the week, or what do we call it, uh, a couple days before daylight savings time. So get ready to fall back. we got to let um, you know now because we won't be here Sunday. Is this like a Sunday. trust fall back? Yeah, it's a trust fall. I brought up a show topic yesterday with you. Yes. And you were like, well, isn't that just, when thought, is that? I you're like, we already that, did that. Yeah, you thought we already did that. And you're like, isn't this kind of an old concept? And I go, no, it's like, it's happening. That's why Halloween was ruined for my family. See, you, because they started when it was daylight, but that's yeah. actually better for the kids because <sighs> less children are probably hurt. Yeah, possibly. And remember, I have very delicate ankles. Mm. I I was noticing on my I was noticing on my walk around the neighborhood <laughs> that uh, you know there was times I could have been unsteady mm. with my delicate ankles that turned so easily. Right, but because it was a little lighter outside, I was safe. Some might say you have two left ankles. 
No, they wouldn't say that. They'd say I have my Nana's dainty little ankles. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to take the Trump approach. Some people might say that. And I'm hearing. <laughs> I've been told or th- things yeah. are – yeah. Speaking of Trump, President Trump is on his way to Asia. I believe for, he's taken off. For or at least he's left the White House. For a journey. Yeah. And as the, his plane left um, D.C., there was this incredible relief. Just an exhale. <sighs> and it doesn't mean he won't be tweeting and, you know, stirring the pot. I don't know. Because when he flew to Saudi Arabia and went around the Middle East, the Twitter uh, frequency dropped off. Dropped off. Well, it's because his schedule was messed what up. They f- well, one, the schedule, but two, Melania's with him. Mm-hmm. And she's of the opinion that maybe he needs to back up yeah, a little bit. She on probably Twitter. hides his phone. Yeah. Well, because she's heading up the anti-bullying movement, right? It's exactly that's, that's her focus. It's yes. also it's the same <laughs> reason that I eat less junk food when my wife is around. Really? I mean, she hides it. It's the guilt. Oh, right? oh. She, she hides it, and I. Does she can't give find you it. like side eye or something if you mm-hmm. go to eat a Twinkie? Mm-hmm. Like, mm. mm-hmm. Oh yeah. If I bring, if I like walk in with a soda from a. Franchise, yes, establishments yeah. around here. Yeah, I get this sigh, like, <sighs> really? And I don't know if it's me. Maybe it's just me. Do you Maybe. ever go? It's water. It's fine. Can a guy not get a water? Just had some at water. Mickey D's without you getting me all out of it. No. <laughs> so, so I did not think of that. Maybe it's because Melania is there. Maybe because they wake up, they have a, a great morning conversation, and he doesn't need to tweet. Mm. That, that's the speculation. Not sure. He might just be, you know, busy. But he's also he he's, free time. and he's going to love Asia. Apparently, he's been um, they've been sending out rules about how what he will eat, what he won't eat. Yeah, he has to have his steak. It needs to be charbroiled. Yeah. needs to be plenty of ketchup. Ketchup on it, and which may not even be how he eats. That, no but it's fish the, with eyes on oh, it. So yeah. the head has to be taken off, off the with, fish. Definitely off with the head. Nobody wants their fish looking at him. No, that always creeps me out. Yeah, my kid likes to run up to the seafood uh, section of the grocery oh, store. I remember doing that. Look at the eyeballs. Yeah. He's like, oh, he just screams really loud. I go, dude, people eat that. Be quiet. You know what will rid him of that is take him deep sea fishing. Yeah, I don't know. That is one of the greatest things. My grandpa took me, and it was a beautiful family event. Some of my cousins were there, and half of the family was sick, Mm. and they were actually being sick over the side of the boat. Oh, nice, yes. But the amazing thing, great for fishing. Oh, yeah. Major chumming. And... um, (laughs) But then they'd bring these fish on board, and you'd have a really nice salmon. And the next thing you know, they're just beating the salmon up. Ooh, you got it. Was that Uncle Charlie that was doing that? Yeah, Charles Townsend. Hmm. And then you know we'd make a call, and Charlie's Angels from California would be on the phone. Nice. Those were the good old days. Good old days. Let's get to the headlines with Terry. What else is going on around the country we should be paying attention to? Former Trump foreign policy advisor Carter Page. Have you heard of Carter Page oh, before? Yeah. He told the House Intelligence Committee during a closed-door interview on Thursday that he informed Attorney General Jeff Beauregard Sessions. I like to use his middle name. Who I think does it's, more, it? it's more official that I way. I agree. Uh, during the 2016 campaign that he was traveling to Russia. Page recounted the series of events to CNN after he testified in front of the committee for more than six hours. So you go into a closed-door interview with the House Intelligence Committee, and then you walk out and go on to CNN and tell them everything you just said. Yeah, that seems like that was a useless close. They should have just left the door open. Just leave the door open. Yeah. Seems like you're going through a lot of effort there for nothing. So he talks to CNN. He said uh, he talked to him for six hours. Representative Mike Conway of Texas, who is leading the committee's Russia investigation, confirmed Page's account. 
If I were Sessions, I wouldn't have recalled it either. It was just in passing. He was walking out of the room. A guy he had never met before grabs him and says, Hey, I'm out on the team. I changed my travel plans to go to Russia, Conway said. Sessions previously told Congress that he was not aware of anyone from the Trump campaign who was communicating with Russians. Hmm. So again, other situations where Jeff Sessions is forgetting, like, Russians had contact. and So so this would mean he perjured himself in front of uh, a, a, a congressional or a, a senatorial body. Multiple times. Except, will that matter? No, of course not. Because the Republicans are in charge. Right. So they'll just slap Mr. Beauregard, Mr. Sessions Beauregard. on the wrist and then... Send him on his way. But it's just funny how many times he's forgotten specifically contacts with this one country. But you know what? Russia's been confusing the last 20 years. Is that years. what it is? Okay. Yeah. Is it USSR? Mm. Is, it, is it Russia? True. You know. Yeah. Is the Ukraine even part of Russia? It used to be. Is it now? Right. It's, it's just It's confusing. Yeah. And then all the stands... That's a lot of stands over there. Yeah. <laughs> South Korean spy agency warned lawmakers Thursday that suspects in North Korea may be ready. They, it suspects North Korea may be readying another missile test, as according to Reuters. Hold it. While, while President Trump is over there? Exactly. The active movement of vehicles around the Missile Research Institute in Pyongyang, which is the capital, yeah. raises the possibility just days before President Trump is expected to visit South Korea. November 7th through the 8th as part of his nearly two-week trip to five Asian countries. North Korea has not launched a missile since it fired one over Japan September 15th, but it has recently warned it would take the world to take literally the country's threat to test a weapon above ground. Ugh. Now, they've tested below ground. Who hasn't? Uh, recently, the reports have come out that the testing area where they use is under a mountain, and it caved in on 100 workers. Aye. So they sent 100 miners into help rescue and it caved in again so another hundred or so i mean this is the problem with underground testing you cause mountains to collapse so (laughs) trump will address the south korean national assembly on november 8th in a speech where he plans to call for maximizing pressure on north korea Mm. also president trump will not be visiting the dmz yeah i was gonna ask he called that um cliche he called it cliche well you know a lot of things that are done by Certain people are cliche. Like every president. But you got to, I mean, that, uh, you've just got to be curious. Don't you want to go to those sure. little rooms where you could have Kim Jong un step out? Right. That would be a magic moment. <laughs> right. No. So okay. he's not going to go. The House Republican tax reform plan was released on Thursday. The wheeling and dealing has reportedly begun. Some are floating an idea of cramming an Obamacare repeal effort into the middle of the tax fight. That should help things. Yeah, that's always exciting. It's fighting fire with more fire. While a small handful of Democrats might get on board, it's more likely Republicans will have to go it alone, meaning they can lose just two GOP votes before their tax bill tanks. Oh, no As this way. article puts it. There, here's a look at the groups of Republican senators that Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and the Senate's chief tax writers will have to satisfy to get a bill through their chamber. The deficit hawks, Bob Corker, John McCain, Jeff Flake, right? they have said that if it raises the deficit at all, we're not going to vote for this. Early estimates, one point something trillion dollars in raising the national debt. So, so that's future debt. That's not current debt. Yeah. So moderates. So does it really raise it? You got moderates and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Yeah. They're concerned about does this actually help the middle class? Is it just helping some people? Which people? Is it a, is it a tax mm, break for the rich? Right. That's kind of what they're looking at. 
Uh, the perennial leadership headaches. Rand Paul and Ron Johnson. Rand Paul doesn't like anything ever, it seems like. <laughs> and Ron Johnson runs the – He's. I think he's – is he the Freedom Caucus guy? But that's in the House. Or wasn't he the sure. guy that uh, wore the pastel suits in Miami? It could be that guy That was guy the brother too. of – Don, he's the brother of Don Johnson. Yeah, Ron, yeah. Don, Ron oh, Johnson. Ron Johnson. Yeah. He's, yeah. Yeah, he's um, and the, also yeah. the demand, demanding conservatives in uh, Mike Lee, Tom Cotton, and Ted Cruz. This is so like, we'll see where this goes. You know what? This this is high school run amok. It feels like it at times. Yeah. There's the popular crowd. There's the popular kids. There's the really smart financial ones. We have to get the goths on board. Mm-hmm. How are we going to do that? So, <laughs> Which one are the goths? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> the drama geeks? Yeah. I was uh-huh. one of those there geeks. You uh, you, no. You mm-hmm. you were not. Mm-hmm. You were a drama, like you'd break into like song every once in a while. Well, no, no, yeah. But I was also one of those financial. You just, I wouldn't say guru, but I would take stuff to school and sell it. You sang the price of the iPhone last hour. It's true. <laughs> that's a good point. My wife. <laughs> no, but but by the way, using a song from Rent. Yeah. Oh, that's true. My wife is uh, is hoping that after this life. Everybody will be able to just, you know, sp- uh, spontaneously break into song, oh. and that we'll all know the words and the music. Mm. So, does so that like sound musical. like heaven to you? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Which place are you planning on going to? The good place or the Ooh. bad place? Uh. <laughs> As a certain show puts it. That, in fact, in the bad place, I think all they have is like accordion music. Wow! And I play. I'd the be accordion. okay with that. I'd be okay with that. I love the accordion. Just as long as it's not country music. But I hate hot temperatures. <laughs> Newsweek reports President Trump's favorite phrase has been named the 2017 World Word of the Year by Collins Dictionary, which defines the word. What do you think the word is? Um, His favorite oh, word. Huge. No. Bigly. No. Great. No. Uh, fantastic. No. Tremendous. Locker room talk. How, how often does he say locker room talk? I don't know. This was locker room talk. Certainly I'm not proud of it. His favorite news is, or news, his favorite word is fake news. That's it's actually, actually two words. Two words. And a false, often sensational information disseminated under the guise of news reporting. Collins states the phrase, use of which has increased 365% since 2016. Yeah. It's only one word if you do hashtag fake news. And, he, you know, it's and typically as, on as, Twitter. As, as Trump has said in many interviews, or a couple interviews, he created the word. Yeah, he invented Wrong. the word. The term fake, fake news. And news. That's him. Wrong. No one, he doesn't know if people used it beforehand or if they... Well, yeah. But certainly they used it after he said it, so, you know. Yeah, fake hair, fake news, fake... <laughs> Some other finalists for word of the year included Antifa... Ah, and mm-hmm. fidget spinner. Oh yeah. <sighs> they say a lot of words under consideration were uh, politically charged. They always are. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. Stranger Things two. Mm. Oh, Stranger Things two. Two. The second season. The second season of the Netflix. Now, but in lightness, many might not know what Stranger Things, what that is. It's a, it's a TV show on it, Netflix. It's on Netflix, it's like eight. The, episodes or so. The teens love it. It's a great show. It's a, so, yeah. so do the 40-year-old newsreaders slash producers of said program. Of Just going to set a little mood for you. Now, this here. is the theme music for Stranger, Stranger Things. So it says, if you've devoted seven and a half hours of your waking life to Stranger Things 2 last weekend, which I don't think anybody here did. I no. know several people it that It says have. you're not alone. Almost one out of every three U.S. Netflix subscribers spent the weekend watching the second season of the popular show. Wow. 361,000 people binged the whole season in one day. 
Sickos. This is according to Nielsen's new ratings for streaming TV. So Netflix doesn't release numbers at all about yeah. who's watching what. They'll just brag about a show being a hit. But Nielsen, the, the television rating company, they've figured out a way they feel to be able to give you a, a good number, to give you a good estimate on what's happening on these streaming services. So just how many people watch Netflix shows have been a mystery for years. Netflix keeps kind of dodging the numbers. Nielsen's stats released Thursday are the first of their kind shared publicly by the TV ratings giant. It announced earlier this month that it started sharing Netflix measurements. It says they said the first episode of Stranger Things 2 averaged 15.8 million viewers in the U.S. in the first three days it was available. With Netflix last reporting, it had more than 52 million members in the U.S. That would work out to about 30% of its U.S. subscribers watched the show. Holy well, cow. Well, I've, I've got a good gauge here. Let's give our listeners some perspective. Okay. In this room, if you watched at least one episode of Stranger Things Season 2, raise your hand. I've watched seven. Man, so Wait, no, no. I, you're supposed to raise your hand. No one's going to see that. I know. It's on the radio. You realize that we're was, on the radio. That right? was the joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little dry 66% of this room. Yeah. And, and, and but you I, probably but, watched – you said the whole thing or well, how much? I have one more episode. Okay. A third has binge watched it so much that his eyes are bleeding. I didn't <laughs> binge watch. I watched like two episodes, maybe one. Just kind of do it every couple days. Wow. It's just a show. Man, I have that time. It says by comparison, and it's apples to oranges, but the final of uh, Game of Thrones – this summer drew fewer than 13 million people. So about oh. 13 million people watched the final or the finale of that or DVR'd it within three days of it being aired. But 15 million people watched that first episode but within three HBO's days. HBO's more expensive. Right? That's interesting. Also, though, maybe that also tells you something about the audience, right? Because this is, an, this is a younger audience and a, maybe a cleaner view. Right. Absolutely. So – Maybe that's why more people are watching. And this doesn't count anyone that used a phone, tablet, or computer. They're just talking about, like, watching it on a TV. This Mm. is, like, one of the few mainstream, semi-family-appropriate shows on Netflix. I know. I'm excited. I'm going to watch it. My wife said she wanted to watch it. And I kind of censored and said, ah. You You haven't watched any of it? Not to. Uh-uh. But you watched watched one. one, But but I, you know, Martian, Alien, I don't know what we're calling these things. They're Stranger Third, Things. Fourth, yeah, Stranger Things that live in the walls. No, they live in the Upside Down. Sorry, yeah. They live in the Upside Down, uh, which is, you they're, know. They're called the, 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 bad, the, the, the bad guy animal, whatever that yeah. thing was from Latin. It's called the Demogorgon. The, de- the Demogorgon yeah. um, and the Upside Down. So, yeah. so Stranger Things takes place in Washington, D.C. Because that's where the no. Upside Downs You're are. Wrong. And the Democrat organs. And the Republic it's not, organs. Not quite right there, yeah. Okay. But I mean you can make parallels wherever you'd like to, but it's it's kind of it's it's escapism. Yes. As you said, it's not um it's something you can watch with say your teenagers. Mm-hmm. I I think it's I'm excited to see if my wife will watch it. I have a now, feeling she won't get into the wall the monster. S- the seventh has she seen the first season? No. Oh well kind of need to see that. The first season or no, the seventh episode. Not so good. Hmm. Um, kind of like the Hold other on. ones. The seventh episode of season one or two. Two. Okay. Not so good. Um, they were trying to give you a lot of sort of backstory. Oh yeah. So they're trying to catch you up and stuff. Yeah. That's well. Actually, they're trying to advance the story by giving you more detail. So they're setting up season three. It's kind of like you want to get back to the monsters. Hmm. Those are kind of cool. They're not monsters. Well, they're, they're demogorgons. demogorgons. But I mean, it's still like 
they had a really cool cliffhanger and then they didn't get back to it for an entire episode. Oh, oh that drives me that's crazy. cruel because so, people fin- are just going to binge it anyway and find out yeah. immediately yeah. what happened. Except fin- now I'm going to skip. Up. I'm going to skip number seven. I, you may Probably not a good idea. You may want to watch it for like context, but it's just mm-hmm. to me it was like one of the really lower points of the eight episode se- you know second season. So this Netflix update brought to you by our sponsor. Yeah. So uh, Terry shared with us a show that people can't stay away from, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got a quick story here about a woman who can't stay away from Walmart for a very interesting reason. Why? So there's a Pennsylvania woman. Yeah. She's charged with defiant trespass after entering a Walmart store earlier this month, despite being given a no trespassing order. So Really? She cannot stay away? She cannot stay away. And I'm going to tell you in a second. Why? Why? why. So Stephanie Dasko, 34, I can – so I'm same age. I can kind of identify with her reasoning here. She's facing a court hearing next month on this charge. State police reported that Dasko is quoted as saying she violated the no trespassing order on October 4th because the cake Walmart sells is too good to stay away. Really? Well, we ought to test that out. Well, I don't know if – I, I I can't say one way or the other about Walmart's cake, but all you really have to do is say cake, and I'm there. Even Terry, like, get us a my, cake. My what, favorite music group, cake. What about like generic, really? mm-hmm. like white sheet cake? Mm. Oh, yeah. You like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only yeah. kind of frosting I don't really like is the, the kind that's like whipped cream kind of frosting. Yeah. It's got to be thick and sugary. you got to taste the granules of eat, sugar. You'll eat oh, wow. the creamy one, right? Oh, of course. No no question. Yeah. He'll suffer through it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like pizza. I'll eat any. It could be semi-frozen. Would you put I'll strawberries eat. on your pizza? Uh, we still haven't solved that sure, problem. Sure. Because there's always crust at the end. Oh, yeah. Are you talking about Terry? <laughs> no, that's crusty. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I just thought you were talking about Terry. Uh, Anywho, hey, up next, we've got a a very interesting interview about um, equality, right? So uh, where where did the whole idea of equality come from, right? Because if, if it's about how much money you have, we're not equal. Are all men created equal? We'll be discussing it up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show as we uh, unlatch the questions, the the lifelong issues of human equality. In our society today, we say that we are all one another's equals, right? Equal rights, we're, you know, all men are created equal. But what does that really mean? Is it a religious concept? Is it a human right? Is it is it a political, you know, achievement? Well, here to help us understand a little bit more behind uh, uh, the the whole phrase and the whole concept of of equality, Jeremy Waldron is joining us. Jeremy teaches legal and political philosophy at NYU School of Law and uh, has thought deeply about this. He's the author of several books, including his most recent one, One Another's Equals, The Basis of Human Equality. Jeremy, thank you for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Talk to us about equality, because we we hear the phrase a lot. I think a lot of us believe we kind of we think we know what it means. But I guess when you get into the philosophical discussion, it turns into a completely different issue. You know, the philosophical discussion can take you in two directions. It can talk about equality and inequality of wealth. 
and income and life prospects and equality and inequality of mortality and health and so on. So that's one branch. The other branch is this deeper philosophical idea that we are in ourselves each other's equals. Nobody is inherently better than anybody else. Um, we are not uh, divided into subspecies. We are all humans and we are all each other's equals. And that's the branch that I've been trying to explore. Not that the other branch isn't important. Yeah. It is. But, but this is an underlying equality that's there in the Declaration of Independence, that, uh, that we were created equal, and that we have, um, in some sense, an entitlement to equal respect and, as you said, equal rights. It, that's what I'm exploring in the book. Oh, that's fascinating. Is it – because, again, then, I guess it is – if we were created equal, then it would have uh, some tenor or tone of religiosity. It was a, a God-given thing. Right, and certainly in our history, that's the way it's been appreciated. One of the things I try and do in the book, in the second to last chapter, is talk about whether there's a religious basis for equality and what that would mean. There are a number of religions from time to time that have embraced inequality of men and women, huh. of, of uh, different right. races and so on. So we can't guarantee that a religious uh, faith is going to drive you towards um, accepting this, this demanding ethic of treating all people with, e with equal concern and respect. But equally, I think it has to be said, there are a number of people who don't believe in God, but who are very strongly committed to the equal dignity of all human beings. So it really spreads right across the spectrum of belief. And it's, um, I, I guess it's a respecter of, of it almost seems, spirit versus uh, uh, physical. I think that's right. People do differ physically. They differ in their spirit and mental abilities as well. But the things that we tend to say make us equals are our capacity for love, our capacity for um, agency and for moral thinking and self-discipline, our rationality. These are, these are largely attributes of the spirit, although they, they flourish and exist in a material world, and they have what you might think of as material infrastructure in the human organism yeah. and, and uh, the human body. Wow. Um, to, to have thought as deeply as you have about this, it's, I think it's pretty powerful. I think, I, do, do you sense as a human, as a human uh, uh, species, as a culture, are we, are we getting, are we becoming more equal? Are we, are, we, are we seeing it more? Are we holding it up? Are we actually improving in our, in our practice of equality? Right. In some respects, we really are. And um, the, the growth in at least public professions of racial equality and equality of the sexes and um, equality of people of different backgrounds and beliefs, that's been growing um, apace over the last few hundred years. The, the real threat to it comes when you have vast inequality of actual conditions of life, inequality mm. of wealth and inequality of living conditions. And people don't have enough familiarity with how other people live to be able to capture the core of spiritual equality in their lives. And there's a, there's a danger that we will make each other unequal in, 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 in the deeper sense of spirit just by perpetuating massive inequalities at the level of uh, material flourishing. So that's a real danger, and that danger is getting worse, not better, I think. Interesting. And um, I guess that's just the dearth of experience experiencing the world all of the other uh, forms and ways of living 
I think that's right. We need to know what it's like to be another person. Yeah. We need to know what it's like to be other people in different situations. And if increasingly we become inscrutable to each other across great divides of wealth or politics um, or life conditions, then you sow the seeds for the growth of um, belief that people really are not one another's equals. Do you think technology helps or hurts this? It seems like it might give us access to other worlds, to other ways of living, to other stories, but it also might incubate us. It it, it may do both, and certainly we do tend to be dividing, sorting ourselves out into different groups, limiting our experience of each other. Technology helps because you can see the world um, partly through others' eyes, but the seeing is relatively shallow. Um, Technology, as in all things, can work for good or for ill, or it can work neutrally and not change much. My, my inclination is to say the, that the third of those is true. It's mostly technology is a kind of a, uh, a neutral agency. It may intensify certain trends, but it may be a force for the better in certain ways as well. One concern that people have is the use of technology to enhance uh, human life, almost bionic technology, and that, I think, is something we have to keep an eye on. Yeah, no, it's true. And, I mean, and, and also technology to to kind of choose the lives we want or and, and even the gender of the baby or whatever as we get that's into that. Right, that's right. An increasing element of choice through technology in the, in the fundamentals of human life. Interesting. Can um, do you because I just saw a story about the fact that many people, uh, you know, care more about animals or their dog than they may their neighbor. Um, do, do you sense that we're elevating the essence or the equality of animals to humans? I don't know. That's, that's uh, something I grapple with in the book in various places. Um, in principle, saying that humans are all uh, are one another's equals leaves the, the question of animals untouched, right? Uh, right. Um, yeah, we, all we're saying is that there are certainly no distinctions among humans of the sort that some people believe exist between humans and animals. So that's number one. But number two, talk of human dignity, which I very strongly believe in, does seem to indicate that there's something momentously important about every man, woman, and child of the human species, um, and that we have abilities and uh, potential that rise far above um, the the, uh, furry and feathered friends uh, in the animal realm. People have massive affection for their pets. People uh, have been developing new ways of appreciating the lives of animals. And all of this is important, and all of this is using the distinctive powers of perception and moral thought that humans have. So I wouldn't denigrate it for the world. Mm -mm. But I believe we have to make sense of what's momentously important about human individuals, each human individual. Um, Again, we're speaking with Jeremy Waldron, who's the author of One Another's Equals, uh, The Basis of Human Equality. This talk of human dignity, uh, how do we... How do we elevate our lives to um, to search after uh, and become one who who protects the dignity of another? Is 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 this a concept of equality teachable, or I mean, what is it? And 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 how do we make it even more apparent in our world? Yeah, we have to make it apparent, and we've got to do it as a matter of public policy. We think, for example, that uh, one of the most important things about anti discrimination law is that it. Um, it, it prevents and stands in the way of expressions of differential dignity, as though one person's dignity were higher than another's. Mm. We insist, and there's an interesting array of cases uh, from legal systems around the world where we take um, human dignity very seriously 
even in interactions where there seems to be some degree of economic consent. So you may have heard of the dwarf tossing cases, an activity that takes place in boisterous bars where little people, people suffering from dwarfism, uh, agree for a sum of money to be uh, harnessed up in, in, in little straps with handles and then thrown by big burly men oh, no way. down, down a, 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 a corridor uh, to see who can throw their dwarf the furthest. And uh, the authorities in France, for example, held that the police were entitled to put a stop to this on the grounds that respect for human dignity was an important part of public order. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, very interesting idea, and I think it's important in a number in a number of areas. So um, particularly in the way that law operates and the way that law takes seriously, even when it's dealing with a, a criminal or a terrorist, you, you, you are aware all the time that you're dealing with somebody who number one, has committed unspeakable acts, but number two is still a person um, possessed of great dignity and has to be respected as such. And that means dealt with in processes of trial and punishment in a way that's not um, uh, incompatible with human dignity. Interesting. And we, I guess, to the language we use, what we call them... Um... I think that's right. You, you occasionally find that um, pe- people talk of criminals as animals mm-hmm. and scum, and it seems to me it would be a good idea to banish that sort of talk um, from from uh, the language of the law, just confine ourselves to the fact that this is a wicked person who did a, a, a very evil thing, but we don't need to bestialize them and we don't need to demonize them. Is that, is that just human nature, I guess, that we need to somehow tear down? If I can tear down the dignity of another, uh, it, it elevates mine? Um, I suppose people think something along that, those lines. Sometimes it's just anger without any particular thought about self-elevation. Right. Um, but we, we need to develop modes of anger, which is sometimes important, and certainly modes of response to criminality and terrorism that nevertheless do not demean the idea of human dignity as such. We've seen a lot in the news um, about uh, sexual um, harassment and... and uh, and sexual abuse of people. A lot of really famous people in the United States and the Holly in Hollywood are now uh, being, um, uh, you know, pointed out as 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 being offenders. I, I guess I'm assuming if we if we really believed in equality at uh, at a more I guess spiritual level and believed in human dignity, this we would see much less of this. I think that's right. We. Um one idea is that this, is, this growing awareness of this as a problem is part of the campaign of equality of the sexes that has been uh, developing and has been um, elaborated um, in quite complicated ways by feminist writers over the last um, 30 or 40 years. Very, very important. Underlying it all is the notion of equal respect and the notion of uh, that we are to take care of one another. We are to make sure that, that we respect one another's worth and that we do not make offers or threats or simply interact um, in a way that harasses people and demeans them. So that the idea of respect, which used to be an old chivalrous notion but is now a notion that is firmly welded to equality, is tremendously important, I think. In some of the um, sexual harassment narratives that have been emerging in the, in the last um, few weeks, some of the uh, feminist writers have been emphasizing that it's important not to see it as just a sort of a romantic skylark. Sometimes the details are important because they show the sordid and mm. demeaning nature of these interactions and therefore help us understand uh, how respect is exactly at issue in these, in these encounters. Hmm. 
No, so true. Um, and, and I guess that's another interesting uh, thing you brought up is to some degree we, we talk about equality, but you can have equality and difference you simultaneously. You can have equality and difference. That's exactly right. I devoted a chapter to that, although it needs a book of its own. Yeah. Because talking about humans as one another's equals fundamentally does not mean that they are all equally good or that they are all equally talented or that they are all equally law-abiding. We have to be able to have a kind of a double consciousness in our dealings with our, our fellow human beings so that for, for a large amount of time we're making differentiations of merit. For a large time, amount of time we're making differentiations of talent and ability. And certainly we're, we're making differentiations of um, morality and uh, illegality. We mm. do that all the time, and it's very important that we're able to do that consistently with regarding each other as fundamentally uh, equal to one another. So um, basic equality is not the whole story yeah. about human beings. And we have to be able to, as I say in the book, scintillate back and forth between um, the dimensions in which we are equal and the dimensions in which uh, we are not equal. Because I, I would love to think that part of my uh, respecting of human dignity would also allow me to still be chivalrous. And yes. oh, and or still be, I mean, which might be kind of me being the man with human yeah. dignity. But then you can also be sensitive, uh, which might be a trait that many might think is a female trait. But we can still be different and and respect wholly or as fully as we can human dignity. That's probably right. It's probably also a good idea to 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 occasionally ask around and and uh, the the intended beneficiaries of chivalry right. and ask whether this is still desired or acceptable. So we can't always assume yeah. that, that traditional patterns uh, work. We need to be sensitive to how they are currently viewed. Partly because chivalry is expressive; it's, it's mm-hmm. expressing a certain respect. And if it's not received as such, then we need to move to different forms of expression. Is when you look at this? I mean, as I'm raising five boys and a daughter, I'm trying to figure out how I could, how I can extend and teach human dignity and the respect of others at that level to my children. Any suggestions that you have, Jeremy, from your research? I, I think um, probably the best way of doing it, apart from just the elementary uh, cultivation of civility and politeness uh, within the family circle, is the, the awareness of storytelling, novels, literature, and history, so that people can become aware that um, the, the civility of respecting people's dignity has been a major player in, in the stories that we tell. It's been a major feature of some of the history that we've experienced, and so that it can become part of the landscape for uh, each of your sons and your daughter uh, in thinking about the world and so that it becomes a natural way of looking at events and scrutinizing them, a natural dimension for understanding um, uh, a book or a historical account to see where human dignity was respected, to see what unusual ways human dignity was respected hmm. and where it is being disrespected. So making that part of the landscape of understanding, I think, is very important. No, totally. Um, and as we wrap it up, Jeremy, what would you – is there is there one thing that, that comes that, that you found in the writing of your book, One Another's Equals, that, uh, that really you think all of us need to hear? There's something that we as humanity at this time of uh, our lives, we all need to remember this one thing. What would that one thing be? The one thing would, 
would be to appreciate that every human life has an inside. Every human life has a point of view where the person looks from inside their life out into the world. And respecting other people involves acting in a way that, that uh, conveys that you're aware of that, you are aware of what it's like to be humiliated, and that you understand um, why people can get prickly and angry. LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, when he was passing the Civil Rights Act, was once asked, why he was so concerned to pass this legislation. And he said, just in a few words, he said, because a man should never be humiliated in front of his children. Hmm. And it's just a few words, and you have to supply a degree of imagination to get at what he was telling you about his own life growing up with his own father. But it's um, a sense of being acutely aware of the potential in human affairs for people to humiliate one another. And we have to appreciate what that's like from the inside of the person who's on the receiving end of the humiliation. So true. Jeremy Waldron, thank you so much for your insight, for your time. Again, Jeremy teaches uh, legal and political philosophy at NYU School of Law and is the author of the book, One Another's Equals, The Basis of Human Equality. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, talk more about how we can respect the dignity of another. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back. Boy, what would the world be like if we could all respect the human dignity in our fellow man? What would it be like if I could actually see the fact that uh, you're more than a male or a female, you're more than a doctor or, you know, a teacher. What if I could see beyond that, beyond the color, beyond what would it, what would happen to us? How would I treat you differently if I actually could see that deeper, more powerful person in you? C.S. Lewis had a great uh, uh, thought uh, that I'll kind of paraphrase. I don't, I probably won't do it justice, but if we could just see the deity, the goodness inside of the person we sit next to, yeah, he he inferred that we'd we'd have a, a desire to fall on our knees to worship them, if we could actually get to the goodness that is inside of every one of us. And then, um, we, you know, we hear in our political talk, we hear in just all of the legal issues that are going on around the world and the country. We hear in in uh, you know every argument about um, class issues, class warfare, cultural issues diversity issues, male-female issues, just a lack of appreciation and of the seeing, the divine. And so how are you doing with that? As you're driving to work, as you're taking care of your family, is there something you can do today, uniquely you, that might help you and me, I'll do it for myself, pick up a game, pick up our game when it comes to respecting the human dignity of others? And is there also a way that we could maybe turn down giving too much power, too much uh, homage and respect to somebody simply because they have material things or they have a a really powerful talent that uh, is so apparent and obvious? Is there a way that we could start to pay more attention to the things that we don't pay attention to? One of my favorite quotes uh, is – says, it's not the bars that hold the tiger in. It's the space between the bars that hold the tiger in. 
It's not the notes that makes the music. It's the space between the notes that makes the music. So the same thing is true when we think about uh, trying to show respect to one another. We have ma- we have material things. That would be the bars. And then we have the spiritual things, the, the space between the bars. We have the notes, the material things, and we have the space between the notes. And really, it's it's the spiritual human dignity that we all need to remember. And again, we don't have to dichotomize everything. So it's not animals or humans, but it's both, right? You can respect and love your animals, and you can respect and love the dignity of a human. So what would happen if if we could change? And what's the one thing you could do today to become that change? Just think about it. But uh, where could you show more dignity? Could you show it more as a as a parent to protect the dignity of your child? How about to protect the dignity of your parents, your seniors that you might be taking care of? How about to protect the dignity of the people in your community? Think it over, and let's see if we can't elevate our lives by just simply focusing a little bit more on the things we don't necessarily see. Just a little advice from uh, Dr. Matt. And we will continue the journey. Our goal, again, is to help, help us all live, you know, live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. It's the House of Bows. It's the House of Bows. And today... It really may be the House of Vows, as uh, McKenna's here to do a little mind bender with us. What if you could buy your house at Ikea? Yeah, so this house, no, it's not actually made by Ikea. No, but like but if you could just go get a house off the shelf and, and they just deliver it and you just... Put it together using a little Allen wrench, a little hex wrench. Okay, that just sounds messed up. Yeah. Keep, keep enlightening us. So... There's this new sort of house that's been designed by this company called uh, Pao P A O, yeah, and they call it the like the the plug-in house, <laughs> and it is completely able to be built using only an Allen wrench. You just use it to connect a bunch of panels, and you can put it together with no specialized labor within 24 hours. It costs ten thousand dollars. So you just put down your cement pad or whatever, then they deliver the house. And then you get out your little Allen wrench because by the time I'm done putting together something from Ikea, my Allen wrench is stripped. Yeah, it's so ruined. So you might, might maybe five. have a couple yeah. just, you know, to be safe. But then other than that, but you have pictures of this house and it actually replaced another house. And it's it's a beautiful – it yeah. looks like a like a, a showroom house. Yeah, they're really nice. It has a very sort of open floor plans, lots of natural light. And – they're seen as this really effective sort of low-cost yeah. housing alternative, especially when it comes to building houses in hard-to-get-to places. Ah. So this one that was built is was built in Beijing in sort of this really old part of the city, really narrow streets, really hard to get a construction team in there to build something yeah. on a budget. Yeah. This, it's all flat-packed. They custom-cut the pieces off-site to make sure it's going to fit your lot. You ship like it in, it. and then you put it together— and now, can it work? Yeah. So there's this, you know, there's a woman who's like actually living in this with her son. It has two bedrooms, has a kitchen, nice. you know, has a living room, all that kind of stuff, has a bathroom. And 
because of it, you know, she is able to have this functional modern house that she would not be able to afford otherwise, especially in such an expensive housing market. Ten grand and you're you're good to go. Yeah. I mean, you have all the people that are out buying tiny houses or building tiny houses or we've we think we've talked on the show about uh, the people that are buying the um the trailers, the the crates, what do they call them? Just the 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 shipping containers. The shipping oh yeah. Houses, yeah. And you build your whole house in a shipping container. But this is just kind of why not off the shelf, Allen wrench it together. But is it sturdy? I mean, to me that would be. I guess it's engineered. Yeah. So it was part of you know this like big engineering you know architecture competition, yeah. and it you know did very well. Um, and so that's that's one of the cool things is that it's going to be able to give you really. I mean, pretty decent. It's sturdier. Housing. Yeah. It's sturdy. It works. You know, it even has like a. A deck on the roof for you to enjoy. How cool! Yeah, and so it might. Maybe this is the future. To you know, for for people that don't have the money, you could actually build a whole community of these. Exactly, and so you know, if there's if the issue is money in terms of material, yeah. or if it's an issue of you're so remote, it's hard to get everything out there and ship it. You can just buy this. It has everything. It's cool. It's a great option if getting a house is hard. Mindbender. It's the only house that comes with Swedish meatballs too. Oh, yeah. And that's but, a reason in, enough to get. <laughs> and the neat thing is you can go get lost in the Ikea store. Yeah. And then you just furnish it with Ikea furnishings. It then was... you could spend another couple months putting your living room furniture together. But heaven help you if you lose any of the hardware. But this can be built in 24 hours. So that's faster than I could build <laughs> pretty much anything else from Ikea. But yeah, there you go. again, this isn't from Ikea. This is from POW. There it is. That's the name. That's, the, that's what it sounds like when you finished your house. McKenna thinks. That's cool stuff. Mindbender. McKenna Baus. Now, up next, uh, we're going to be turning the reins of the show over to Jeffrey Liam Simpson as he's going to go take us into his show, Screen Cleaning. It's exciting. We've got Rod Gustafson on the show, and he and I both saw Thor Ragnarok. Ooh, you saw it. So we're going to be giving our little review on that. We didn't see it together. He lives in Canada. I live in Utah. But weren't you FaceTiming? Uh, the whole the whole thing. We were Facebook living it, yeah. And uh, we're also going to be speaking with our guest who is going to be talking about the decline of cable, mm. which is very timely because we just recently canceled our cable bill, and I feel so liberated. Do you feel free? I mean, look, at, I, I, I'm smiling, you, and you I didn't haven't even, even had today. breakfast. Shh. Okay. That's all straight it's ahead. Mo- it's November, right? It is November. Yeah. It's November, folks. So screen cleaning straight ahead. You're not going to want to miss it. And that's it for me. Thanks for sharing a week with me. Uh, lots uh, lots of uh, learnings this week. And I'm just so proud of the Houston Astros. Jeff will fix that in the next hour, I'm sure, as he celebrates the L.A. Dodgers. Again, you can find out more about the show. Just go check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. Go to BYURadio.org. You can download the BYU Radio app. And uh, we're here, folks. We're here because we care. Have a great weekend uh, and take care of each other. And let's seriously go start to see the dignity in the people that we are on this great ball of mud with. That's the show. Uh, That's my part of the show. Jeff Simpson's up next with Screen Cleaning. Stick with us. BBC News. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. It's Friday. It's 9 a.m. Mountain Time, so 11 a.m. Eastern and and 8 a.m. Uh, 
Pacific time. I'm just trying to confuse you here on the show today. And uh, speaking of trying to confuse you, we've got daylight savings time coming up. And uh, don't forget, you're going to fall back, not fall forward. You're going to fall back, you spring forward, so you get an extra hour of sleep. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. This is Screen Cleaning, and every week on Screen Cleaning, we do our darndest to bring you the very best in the entertainment industry. Whether it's movies, TV, books, plays, restaurants, you name it, anything entertainment related that's good, we're going to talk about it. And uh, I just found out during the break, I, I... Kind of, we got on kind of a hot topic subject with Cole, which we're also going to talk about here in a second. And it had to do with the new movie that's out today, Thor Ragnarok, which I'm sure is going to make a ton of money. And it's already made over $100 million overseas, so I'm sure it'll make even more here. But anyway, let's start off by giving you the very best in entertainment news. Starting off with the best Star Wars news, Cole, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, over Halloween, I think it was on Halloween, there were these uh, two people that, I guess you could call it a prank or maybe just something really clever. Nobody was hurt emotionally or physically. A fun so, thing to do. Yeah, a fun thing to do. Somebody made kind of a uh, their version of a Star Wars speeder. I don't know if it's a speeder or a speeder pod. That, that uh, piece of transportation that was used in Return of the Jedi in the forest scene. Right. Right? Leia and Luke both had one. Mm-hmm. And somebody basically took a motorcycle, but they put these reflective panels on the wheels so it looked like this vehicle was just floating on the street. And it looked – Which is cool. It looked legit. It looked really cool. So that was a lot of fun. Um, And I I don't want to be a sore loser, so I'm just going to very quickly congratulate the Houston Astros – on winning the World Series. They've never done it, so good for them. And good for both teams for putting on the one of the greatest World Series I've ever seen. Um, I will say, I will say there's an asterisk with that because it was probably the worst Game 7 <laughs> of any of the Game 7s that ever happened in a World Series. It was over basically in the first inning. Correct. Poor then, Yule Darvish. And then and nothing happened. The the real sad thing about this is not only that your team lost, but mm-hmm. also we've just exited the golden period of time in sports where all four are going at the exact same time. It's true. We have, we have a couple weeks of break before college basketball starts to tip off and we get fun that way. But I'm going to miss that, that glorious little month where yeah. baseball playoffs and then NBA and NHL first month of the season and the NFL's in full swing and college football's going on. And- well, don't worry if you miss baseball. You only have to wait practically another month before it starts up Spring again. Spring training. Oh, it's crazy. Too much baseball. Uh, In the best casting news, I was excited when I read the cast of this new film that's coming out. You know how they – Disney did a live-action version of The Jungle Book. They're doing all sorts of live-action versions of their animated features. One of the uh, the big ones that's coming out is The Lion King. Listen to some of these names that they've assembled in this movie. Beyonce is Nala. You've got Donald Glover, who's from Communities on the show Atlanta on FX. He's going to be Simba. Chiwetel Ejiofor is going to be Scar. What do you think of that? I'm excited. Seems like it's it's another part that uh, Idris Elba easily could have played. He played... Shere Khan. He played Shere Khan in yeah. the Jungle Book. He's got that, you know, that really deep, mm-hmm. sinister voice. 
Uh, Keegan-Michael Key, whom I love, is Kamari. I'm not sure who Kamari is. Is he one of the hyenas Those are the three hyenas, yeah, that they had down in that corner of the graphic that showed you the cast. This pair is kind of interesting. Billy Eichner from Billy on the Street uh, is (laughs) going to be— And Parks and Rec. Right, Parks and Rec. He's Timon, and Seth Rogen is Pumbaa. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But here are the two that I'm most excited for. In In a stroke of genius— uh, as far as casting goes, they casted John Oliver as Zazu. Correct. I love that. I love that. That's going to be fantastic. I also loved Rowan Atkinson in the animated feature. Who doesn't mm-hmm. love Rowan Atkinson? And then uh, just a, a nod to the original animated series, James Earl Jones as Mufasa. Because no one else could. Right. And he, you know, he's getting up there in age, but he can still do voiceover. Mm-hmm. And if they're doing the motion, the whole motion capture thing, I'm sure they can get somebody else to do that. Yeah, I mean, and he did Darth Vader voicing in That's Rogue true. One, That's so true. he's not beyond able to do that. And also motion capture for lions. When you say live action, you're being generous with that word because they're still using exactly. This it's kind basically, of, it's an animated, yeah. real looking thing, unless they're all trotting them out in fur suits and things like that. That is a great point. A great point. Uh, I mentioned Daylight Savings Time. It's coming up on Sunday. So wake up at 2 a.m. and change all of your clocks. Or, you know. Just... They won't do it automatically. You have to be up at That's the exact true. time to do it. That's true. And uh, th- this brings up a good question, Cole. I always get excited when it's our fallback Daylight savings time because it means I get an extra hour of sleep, it's right? the extra hour in the day that everyone always yeah. begs for. I could probably think of one time in my entire life where I didn't waste that extra hour. Um, and, you know, really, it's kind of meaningless now because I have kids and so they don't – they're all sorts of confused about what time it is. And so they're not going to give you that extra hour to sleep. So I'm going to ask you this. Do you think you will get an extra hour of sleep or do you think you'll do something like go and binge watch Stranger Things? Well, because I've already completed the Stranger ah, Things, I guess I'm going to get to catch up on my sleep. Okay. Well, good for you. you have, you'll have to let me know if you actually do that. I'll probably waste it like I always do. I always kick myself for that. But again, even though I try to be more responsible and try to get a little more rest, the kids aren't going to help out with yeah. that. Okay. Terry talked a little bit about this on Matt's show. We're going to talk a little bit about it. Now, Stranger Things... You were one in the. You were one of the fifteen point eight million people that watched the premiere the first weekend I on know. Netflix. Definitely. Wow! So we watched it as well opening weekend, and uh, we have not finished it though. And I, I've heard that just around the corner there's a very controversial episode coming up that a oh lot of boy. people didn't like. Terry was furious. Uh, Probably didn't like it as much as you didn't like Thor Ragnarok. (laughs) We'll get to that, too. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, I will probably finish it this weekend. I'm not sure how you've been able to stop. So I I started (laughs) the first day. World Series, that's how I've been able to stop. That forces, yeah, and you have to wake up in the morning kind of thing. And that would get you to go to sleep. But uh, Stranger Things just has that knack that, that brings me back to when I was watching Lost in high school where you just... You couldn't – you had to get the next episode. It, it's built in a way to just 
to maximize binging. See, there are some shows that, like The Office, where you can start and stop wherever you want. Netflix has it. You can watch it all day or you can watch an episode and give up. But Stranger Things, that story just it gets you right to the next one. And the only problem, The only problem with binging is the shows that people binge are the shows that – are kind of what would be considered I don't want to I wouldn't say Stranger Things would be considered like premiere or a prestige television uh, but it is it's event television right, right? Yes. okay so my problem with that is you binge it in a weekend and all mm-hmm. of a sudden you're out of episodes and you've got to wait a year or two before you can watch any more. See, these these premiere shows or these event shows, they're they're also known as limited series. So they're only going to get nine or ten episodes, some of them only six or eight episodes. So what do you do once that show's gone? But the thing – so as people start cutting the cords as you've done and yes. as I don't even have a cord to cut because I'm young and, and just starting off. But as people start going away from watching things on actual television, event and you know appointment television is going downhill. And so in order to participate in your community, in order for me to come on the radio and talk about it <laughs> within a short period of time and in order for me to talk about it with my friends and on Twitter and everywhere else, you got to watch it. When it first comes out, so you're really so you just be performing. Part of you're performing a public service, is what you're doing. I am. I'm doing this <laughs> for the listener. Speaking of uh, cutting the cords or cutting cable, we're going to be speaking with later on the program a guest who's going to be talking to us about the decline of cable, and I'm excited because I recently cut the cord and it feels great. Woo. It's a very liberating feeling, uh, but unfortunately. That means that we have to start buying more memberships to all these different apps and all these different streaming channels. And uh, the last little bit of entertainment news that I want to talk about is CBS All Access. One of these, yeah. I don't know if it's like five or ten bucks or something. About. Yep. You have to you have to buy into that in order to watch the new Star Trek show. In order to Discovery. watch shows like The Good. Uh, it's the spinoff of The Good Wife. I can't remember what it's called. but uh, Not The Good Doctor? They're different? They're, they're different, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're doing another iteration of The Twilight Zone, which could be good, could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. There have been several different versions of Twilight Zone throughout the years. They're- At least three reboots now, oh, not yeah. including the 59, and then there's the movie, and then there's... Basically every decade they're trying to reboot yeah. it. So we'll see if it works. It might be a little tricky, though, because you, they're only going to be able to access the viewers that buy into the CBS All Access streaming channel. So we'll see if it works. I'm I'm a fan. I love pretty much everything Star... Or, Star Trek. Uh, Twilight Which, Zone. So I love everything Star Trek. Yeah. And I've been kind of disappointed that... CBS is a network, um, you know, network channel. Yeah. Uh, so people should be able to just get it by sticking bunny ears on the top of their TV. That's how I grew up. That's how you right? get to watch free television. Yeah. Those, you get Fox, ABC, NBC, and and uh, CBS, right? But yeah. CBS is now putting a paywall in front of their stuff and in front of the good stuff that I want to see, like Twilight Zone and Star Trek. Boo. I know. Thank you. Exactly. Well, I guess I'll have to buy it or just send Cole to watch it since he's the one that wants to do the public service. Or find a buddy, <laughs> there which you is go. what everyone does with HBOs. There kind you of go. Things, right? Well, when we return, we're going to be speaking with Rod Gustafson, who's going to be here to talk to us about the new film Thor Ragnarok. And it's kind of a unique situation because all three of us have already seen it. 
That's coming up soon here on Screen Cleaning. Welcome to a 90-second movie review for the film Goodbye, Christopher Robin. Goodbye, Christopher Robin is the story about A.A. Milne and his family. Milne wrote the vastly popular Winnie the Pooh books at a time when England needed a positive kick in the pants. Milne is played by Domnall Gleeson and his wife, Daphne, by Margot Robbie. Their son, Christopher Robin, is played by Will Tilston. He comes along and Mom still wants her old life, while Dad is still recovering from the First World War. I was lost in this story because it is so good. The acting made me feel something for each character on the screen. This is a film that will take you on an emotional journey. You'll go from laughter to fear to tragedy and back to happiness many times over in less than two hours. Whether or not the story is factual doesn't matter. Just enjoy the show on the screen and feel the emotions the actors are giving you. While the film centers around the children's books Milne created, the story is one of a family and what happens to them as the books become very popular. The actors and the filmmakers have done an excellent job telling the story of this family. The look of this film is beautiful, using many natural shots of the forest with father and son. Even the special effects get in on the story as they change the imagination of a boy from winter to summer in a very unique way. This film is touching and brilliant. Parents, please note that there are some scenes of warfare and characters suffer from PTSD. There is some social drinking and smoking that takes place. Very little profanity can be heard, but there is some bullying. Goodbye, Christopher Robin is rated PG, and I am giving it an A grade. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean O'Neill, and this has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. We're going to be speaking with Amanda Lotz, who is uh, a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan. Earlier this spring, ESPN announced that they were laying off more people. And over the past two years, ESPN has lost around 7 million subscribers. And Cole, during the break, was saying how sad that makes him. Cable subscriptions in general have been on the decline since companies such as Sling, Netflix, and Hulu have taken over the entertainment industry. But does the downfall of ESPN show a stronger trend in the decline of cable television? Well, here to speak with us today is Amanda Lotz, who, as I mentioned, is a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan and the author of the book, We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It. So uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about this uh, because I am currently contemplating cutting my cable so that we can just focus more on streaming services such as Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. Uh, I was hoping that you could start off by talking to us a little bit about the evolution of television and and cable television and and some of the purposes and how things have changed throughout the years. Sure. So as television launched in the United States, it was first available only by broadcast. Uh, which meant if you can remember back, you probably had an antenna up. Uh, You received those signals over the air. But in some parts of the country, uh, typically in mountainous areas, there were obstacles that prevented those broadcast signals from reaching households. And that was where the cable industry came from, uh, was to help those homes that were down in the valleys receive those same signals. And so for the first 20, 30 years of cable history, it was nothing more than a service that brought broadcast channels to the home. Then in the 1970s, uh, some regulations changed and the industry actually began to develop its own content and its own channels. 
And that's sort of where we've been since the through the 1980s, but that was really the decade that cable took off in the United States. What has changed recently is that a new way for video content to arrive at your home developed, and that's over the internet. And so this can be really confusing because for many of us, our internet provider and our cable provider is the same company. Um, and so sometimes we think about these things as being different and sometimes the same. Um, and so I can talk you through some of the differences between the technologies sure, and in, yeah. in the way that we're paying for them. So uh, you mentioned in, in, uh, in We Now Disrupt This Broadcast how cable transformed television and the internet revolutionized it. You talked about ESPN and you say that ESPN was the the top grossing network and how that's changed. Why do you think it has changed? Well, the perception has largely been that ESPN was invincible to some of the changes that we're developing. And that has to do with the particularity of ESPN's content. So whereas other programs, let's say you like The Walking Dead, but maybe you're willing to wait for it to come on another service or you're going to record it and watch it later. So all of these changes that DVRs brought to some of our viewing behaviors uh, that took away people from that live advertiser-based audience, ESPN really was immune from that because so many of the sports contests, people aren't recording those and watching them later. They're watching them live. So that was one thing that ESPN that may had that made it different. And then the second thing is, is real exclusivity. Uh, because of the, the multi-million and billion dollar licenses that ESPN was willing to pay for different sports leagues, they really were the only place to access a lot of those contests. And so if you were a fan of something and the only place you could watch it was on ESPN, uh, then you know, that really made ESPN a must-have for cable subscribers. The result of that was ESPN is owned by Disney, and that really having that kind of must-have content gave Disney a lot of power in the negotiations that take place between the cable channels, uh, so ESPN, uh, CNN, PBS, all of those channels. They negotiate deals with your cable provider. So cable is actually two different businesses, it's cable channels and cable providers. So for me, my cable provider is Comcast, but it could also be a satellite provider like DirecTV. For each home that receives ESPN, uh, a cable provider pays a monthly fee. And so ESPN's fee was much is much, much higher than any other cable channels. And that's because ESPN could say, well, if you don't carry us, you know, people are going to go to your, your competing service because we are offering this content that no one else can access. Yeah. And, and, and that's really what sort of set ESPN up to be in this position where it was perceived as different from the rest of the cable industry. You know, it's interesting because I'm actually a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, and the only place you can watch those games is uh, if you have Time Warner Cable. At which, of course, I don't. So that excludes a lot of people from seeing those games. Um, interesting. So do you feel like ESPN is, is a good representation of, of the rest of the cable industry? Well, I think we had started to see some change in the rest of the industry. And what really caught has caught people by surprise was the fact that ESPN um, is proving vulnerable as well. 
And the, the big change, I guess, if we've had a number of changes in the last few years, but the, the, the thing that's changed in the last just one or two years, I'd say really since 2015, has been the emergence of these other services. Um, you might have heard them called skinny bundles. Um, right. In the industry, we call them virtual MVTDs, which is a mouthful. Um, but these are companies, or these are services like Sling TV, uh, Sony View. In the last year, both Hulu and YouTube are, have launched these services as well. And what they are is a package of channels that is delivered to you by Internet. So it's a lot like cable, but it's actually coming over the Internet. And yeah. what that's done is it's changed the, the economics of the business some. Speaking of the Internet and getting back to the Dodgers, too, um, instead of watching a three- or a four-hour game, I can go online and just see a minute-and-a-half highlight of all the best parts of the game. And then I don't have to see all the lulls and play. I can just focus on the best of the game. So, yeah, it seems like there are other options now for people to get the same entertainment in a shorter amount of time and not get it from ESPN. Right. It's interesting that you bring up baseball because Major League Baseball really has been at the forefront of a lot of the technological change and with its MLB TV, um, Internet distributed service. So you know, that was something where if you are truly a baseball fan and you can't access your team because maybe you don't live in that market and, and as you note, um, your service provider doesn't have those games, uh, they've made a very good business out of creating a Internet-provided service for fans to reach those games. Um, and so I think we're seeing MLB being pretty far ahead of some of the other sports in, in that way. And I think that has to do with some of the particularities of baseball in comparison with other sports. Um, but I think we are likely to see more of those sorts of packages being made available directly by the leagues uh, in, in coming years. Talk to us more about how you feel uh, these streaming services are going to continue to affect cable. So let's start with uh, Netflix and Hulu and Sling. What do you see as the future of these streaming services? What I think we're seeing is competition in the marketplace for the first time. So the cable industry has been extremely uncompetitive because they're in, for most subscribers, you have very little competition. So basically, you have one cable provider available in your city, and you have a satellite service. And what has happened over the years is that the cable channels uh, required the same deal of both cable providers and satellite providers. So uh, consumers really had no choice. You could either get a really big bundle and pay a whole bunch of money from your cable provider, or you could do the exact same thing from satellite. So there really wasn't a choice in service. And so what we're seeing now with the Internet distributed services is choice for the first time. For a long time, I think people have called for something called a la carte, uh, which is this idea that you'd be able to access just and pay for just particular channels and build your own package. Right. And the Internet distributed technology is, is getting us closer and closer to that. So it's not going to be what I think a lot of people imagined a la carte might be back in the 90s, um, but there is increasingly the possibility of developing those more finely tuned packages. Yeah, and you know, as a as a cable consumer myself, I'm kind of to the point where I look at my 
uh, TV consumption, and it's just it's just not there all that much. And we're paying sixty five dollars a month, and we're kind of the point where we feel like, why are we letting these this cable company push us around? <laughs> because mm-hmm. we don't even watch most of this content. Right. I think the big thing that's been holding change back is that television has been primarily an ad-supported medium. And ad, when, when television is ad-supported, you have, I mean, basically the economic transaction that's going on there is that the channels are creating programming to attract an audience, and then that audience is being sold to advertisers. And all of these new technologies that allow us to control when we watch and how we watch, most of those aren't real great for advertisers. And, and the technology hasn't quite been there in order to take advantage of audiences viewing in that way, which is why we've seen services such as HBO and Showtime largely leading the way into these new forms of distribution because they are subscriber-funded. They don't have to deal with advertisers at all. You're paying for that content. Um, and so really they have this incentive to try to make people as happy with the viewing experience as, as they can. We are now just in the last year, actually the last few months, we've seen announcements from AMC as a channel and just this week from FX that they are making a service available for you to access the content from those channels in that same kind of subscriber-based way. And so you're, we're certainly going to look at paying more for those services than the amount that those channels have been receiving from cable service providers, but that has to do with uh, we're taking that ad support out of their, their financial equation, and so they're seeking to make up that money in subscriber fee. You just made my day because two of my favorite TV shows come from AMC and, and FX. It's Fargo and Better Call Saul. So I'm oh, excited. Very good. <laughs> yeah. So okay, now let's let's get back to ESPN a little bit. Do you think that ESPN can change their strategy and get back on top? Is that possible? I think ESPN is in a tough position. And if you really think about what cable channels are, um, they're they're middlemen. For the most part, what they've been doing is gathering and organizing content for viewers. And really what the Internet does that is challenging the old business model is that they're allowing the content creators, whether that's a film and television studio or a sports league, to interact more directly with the consumer. And so if a sports league like like MLB uh, wants to develop the customer-facing infrastructure and avoid that middleman entirely, I, I have no doubt that their financial planners have identified how much money they would need to make um, off of a subscription and how many subscribers that they would need to have in order for a direct-to-consumer offer to be more valuable than the sports league licenses. And right now, the sports leagues are taking advantage of the fact that the television and and cable channels have been willing to pay these long-term, really big licensing deals. And so that that has given them some guaranteed income in a a period of considerable change. And the downside of that is that it's really tough on ESPN in that they had these forecasts of how much money they thought they'd be able to be making. They had no real sense that subscriber numbers could decrease uh, to the extent that they have just in this last year. And hence uh, the many, many layoffs that they've experienced. Right. That's really the only 
cost that they can cut because many of these licenses go on in through the 2020s uh, and, and, you know, they are commitments that can't be changed. Yeah. Okay, now let's just talk about cable TV in general. Now, I've had this idea that, well, I'm sure they've thought of it before, but in my mind as a consumer, I'm thinking I would be so much more likely to remain loyal to a cable company if they would just get rid of that pesky phone part of the triple play offer that they have. I mean, first of all, I don't even know who still has a landline anymore. I do think that some cable companies are starting to offer a triple play with a a mobile contract instead of a landline. But why is it, do you think, that they're so uh, insistent that they hold on to that phone part of this contract? Well, I think the ones that are making a mobile play available, it has to do with them actually owning um, or having an arrangement with a mobile provider. So in order, the landline comes from the fact that they've already got all the technology there. Um, they are offering its voice over IP. They're offering the triple play because in their, their wire into your home, they can, they can provide all that service. Most of the companies that are cable service providers do not own any um, inter- mobile phone infrastructure. And so that's a competing service. So cable TV now has all this competition with Netflix and Hulu and Sling and all these other providers that we've been talking about. Do you think cable TV will ever be the same? And if not, what is it that they need to change to at least continue to compete with all of these streaming services? So we need to back up and break down again the difference between those cable businesses. So the cable channels are being... um, challenged by companies such as Netflix and others that are now creating content that is attracting our attention. So the cable channels, I'd say, like ESPN, are probably in the most danger. The cable service providers are actually in a great position. They have quietly transformed themselves into being internet service providers. In fact, many of the companies that we might think of as cable companies now have more internet subscribers than cable subscribers. So not only do they have more people paying for that service, but the margins are also better because they're really not paying for the content. So they're actually in a very good position as internet service providers because as people do cut cable packages, and yes, they they lose some money there, but that probably means that your internet data consumption is going to increase. And one thing that a number of the companies have, again, quietly done is change their billing procedures so that it is not actually an all-you-can-use Internet um, bundle that you're buying anymore, but that you have a cap. And so normal home Internet consumption right now, um, most people won't hit that cap, but some of the new technologies that are coming in, such as ultra 4K quality uh, video, that's a much bigger, that requires a lot more data, so that could start pushing people into using more and more data. So the, the cable, what we thought of as the cable companies are now actually the Internet service providers, and they're actually in a pretty good position for all of this. That's so interesting because I've noticed that my Internet bill is almost as much as my cable bill. 
So, yeah, just like you said, they really are more of an Internet provider than than cable providers. She is the author of We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It. She is also a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan, and her research focuses on U.S. television, specifically the industrial shifts since the end of the network era, and on representations of gender on television and in the media. And again, Amanda, we really appreciate your time. When we return, we'll continue the fun and continue the discussion. We'll be right back. And we're back. This is Screen Cleaning, and there's a big movie coming out today. And... uh, It's called Thor Ragnarok. It's one of about 500 Marvel movies that will be coming out over the next couple of years. And we've got Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews here to talk about it. And Rod, I don't know if he's going to chime in on the microphone at all during your review, but uh, Cole and I both saw Thor Ragnarok as well and have very differing opinions. And uh, I'm guessing you're going to give a more favorable review than he ever would of this film. So I'm curious to know what you thought of it. Well, I'm curious to know, first of all, is Cole a big, like, does he have the entire Thor canon stored under his bed in milk crates or something? Like, is he a big it's comic book It's not bl- my bl- bed. It's my dad's attic. But you <laughs> pegged me, Rod. <laughs> yeah, he his his bedroom is actually, he's converted it into Asgard. And uh, uh-huh. he did mention that the first Thor was one of his favorite movies. So, yeah. So do you? So Cole, do you have that little rainbow bridge going to the bathroom or something? <laughs> the like? Bifrost. Yes, I follow it every morning. Is that what it's called? <laughs> oh, the Bifrost. Yes. Wow. Bifrost. Oh, oh, the bridge. Okay, I'm so confused. I thought the Bifrost was the transporter Star Trekky thing, but okay, it's all right. <laughs> I'm lost. I'm dazed and confused. You know, and that that is the point. I liked it because this movie and when they say i liked it you know we gave it a b minus right on the line but you know this movie is very accessible for people who really don't have much of a clue who thor is because it's funny there's tons of comedy in this film however my buddy that i sat beside in the theater who told me just before the lights went down that he the next day he is selling his 30 year old Marvel comic collection uh, for some outrageous price. At the end of the movie, when the lights went up, he went, meh. He says, you know, they're trying too hard to make this a comedy, and they just really aren't sticking to the nature of who this character is. So I think that is the the uh, denominational differences between us is for those of us who've just walked in to go see a movie, eh, you know what? We'll probably laugh a lot and we'll think it was a good time. But for the real serious Thor people, I think they may, get, may come out a little disappointed. And that's, I think you could count Cole in that category. Um, I, at this point for me, there's so many of these films. I'm not really expecting much as far as originality is concerned i will say i in my opinion i i'm this may be the funniest marvel movie i can't remember laughing mm-hmm. harder at a marvel movie than i did in this movie and i think most of that comes from jeff goldblum's character who to me really steals every scene that he's in 
And I love just the, the, the very casual banter that looks like almost it, maybe it wasn't scripted. They just kind of, you know, mm-hmm. ad-libbed here and there, which is a lot of fun. And I, I love the soundtrack. I felt like I was watching a Nintendo game. I think I really feel like that's kind of the feeling they were going for. Um, and then I, I do notice, I, I noticed something that you did as well. I do feel like most of the dialogue that Chris uh, Hemsworth had in this film was very out of character from what we've seen from him in the other films. And I don't know if that's just him becoming acclimated to the to the Avengers and hanging around with Tony Stark a little too much where, you know, they pick up on some of the lingo and some of the hip dialogue. But uh, I, I definitely feel like, and I still feel like this, but when they, when I started seeing trailers for this, I noticed that, you know, if you look at the numbers for these Marvel movies, the Thor movies definitely were on the the lower end of the box office returns and probably the lower end of uh, critic scores and audience scores. So I, I feel like they, they took a movie like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which was hugely mm-hmm. popular. They both did extremely well. And the thing that's different about those films is they're just – they're just fun. They're they're all about fun. They could almost exist outside of the Marvel universe. In fact, I was hoping that they would do that with those films, but they're not going to do that ultimately. I feel like they were giving Thor the Guardians of the Galaxy treatment and just going in a completely different direction, giving it a, a total overhaul. Yeah, absolutely agree. In fact, that's the, I came out of the theater feeling like this was like Guardians of the Galaxy 1, number two of that franchise got quite a bit more serious, which was a little disappointing for me. But as I say, you know, I think the comedy is part of what makes this accessible to a larger group of fans than just people who have the the box, the comics stashed in a closet somewhere. Um, interesting, when you were talking about the ad-libbing, when I read through the production notes on this, and I'm sorry, I'm going to totally butcher the director's name because I, I'm not <laughs> ooh, totally... Ooh, ooh, I, got know, I got this. I got this. Yeah, his name is Taika <laughs> Waititi. Uh, he's a New Zealand native. Oh, thank and you. I, thank apparently, you, Cole. he I, was the, the rock creature that... Thor meets up with halfway through the movie. He sticks himself in all of his oh, movies, really? and he was the voice of, he was the quirky sounding voice of I that he was great. big, hunky rock. <laughs> if that was him, he was super it funny. Was, yeah. That that was incredible. Anyhow, in the production notes, it said that, that he, the director, gave uh, about three of the actors mentioned how much leeway they had to just clown around and that they really had an opportunity to do a lot of ad-libbing and just have some fun with the characters. And so that really does come through. So, you know, that that seems to be the intent of where they wanted to move the movie to go. Now, interestingly, this does not happen very often in action movie genres. I go to Rotten Tomatoes. The critics have given this a 94%. The audience score is 89%. Now, statistically, that's not very different. But still, I can't think of the last time I saw an action film where the critics were liking it even more than the audience did. So, you know, hopefully this will be the perfect storm for Hollywood. They certainly need one in a positive direction where... You know, that where this will pull in both the casual, I want to go see a movie, the comic book fans as well, as well as people who follow critics and think, oh, I want to see something artistic with a Marvel Comics <laughs> franchise. So, so there you go. Yeah. I, you know, maybe I'm just a little rusty on some of the other Marvel films, but I was actually kind of surprised that I thought it was pretty violent. 
Yes, yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because I thought I better get my parent hat on here because, <laughs> yeah, parents, before you run out with the eight-year-olds, phone a babysitter. That would be a good idea. Take your teenagers. I think they m- might be okay with this. But this is a very violent film. Uh, there were there were two issues in this movie that it drove us right down to our very lowest recommended grade, which is a B-. minus. Um, one was the violence. There's a couple of scenes in here, one in particular where this Jeff Goldblum character is basically a dictator of a planet. And he just mows down a crowd of people with some sophisticated weapon uh, that basically, I mean, this is a Marvel PG-13 movie, so there's no blood. Um, and the the corpses just kind of, I don't know, melt into a puddle or something. I'm not sure what really I was kind of looking, couldn't really tell. But basically, he annihilates a huge group of extras. And, uh, and this happens again on another occasion with another character. And many, many characters in this film are killed or or throwing off of things onto things and whatever. And then, of course, one of the big reasons the comic book people are showing up is is there's going to be a battle in this movie between between Thor and the Hulk. And so this battle, in my opinion, did absolutely nothing to push the plot forward. Not that there was much of a plot, but it's just 15 minutes of watching these two guys jump on top of each other and the comic book people in my audience are going, yeah, yeah. But I'm thinking, you know, who cares? So so that so the violence was the one reason that you know for the B minus. The other thing that I that I didn't appreciate is there's a female heroine in this film who is essentially she's really struggling with an alcohol problem that's played out to be very comedic. And uh, you know, maybe back, you know, five decades, four decades ago when these comic books were coming out that past a little bit more but today she's we also discovered that part of her drinking issue it's implied is because she's having a terrible time with her life and so it, to play this out for pure comedy and really never address it in a serious way especially considering how young of an audience these movies attract that didn't go very well with me either so there's our b minus grade overall well, Rod Gustafson, we really appreciate your time here on Screen Cleaning. And uh, yeah, if you're maybe you're more of a hardcore Thor fan, maybe you'll be disappointed. But if you're just like me and you're not really going to these films to look for plot or character development, you just want to laugh and have a good time, then it's probably going to be right up your alley. Sorry, Cole. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. See what's coming up on their show. This is Screen Cleaning. If you love stories like we love stories, tune in to The Appleseed, Tellers and Stories on BYU Radio, Monday through Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern. For a little of this. I can't help it. Just look at all the work I have to do every day, cooking and cleaning. Well, that lord of mine spends all day hunting them carcasses. The Appleseed team brings you great stories from great tellers just about every day on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. happy music for you here as we head on over to BYU Sports Nation and talk to Spencer and Jerem, two guys that make us particularly happy. And I have the wonderful opportunity to talk with them now to see what's coming up on their show. Spencer and Jerem, how are you? Hi, how Jeff? are you? Jeff. Are you going to be all how, right? How are you? <laughs> so sorry. I knew this was coming. I knew it was coming. We are concerned for your welfare. Really? Yeah. Okay, I, you, this may surprise you. I 
I was a little uh, indifferent in Game 7, not just because of the outcome, but because, you know what, they made it to Game 7. It was a great series. At that point, if the Dodgers won, great, because it had been 28, 29 years since they'd won. But if the Houston Astros won, then they finally have a World Series title. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that the game was over in the first inning. Yeah, so I'm totally with you. That game was a snooze fest. And I really, I you know, because this series is going to go down as one of the best World Series ever, but maybe not so much anymore because of how disappointing Game 7 was. Maybe one of the most disappointing Game 7s. Isn't that strange it how it was unbelievably entertaining, but because of, hey, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> yeah. Now all of a sudden it's not an exciting World Series? Exactly. And the the saddest part of the series really is that uh, Dave Roberts finally got the performance he was looking for out of his bullpen in Game 7, and yet he got the worst performance out of his starter in Game 7. Yeah. Do you want you Darvish back? Uh, not really. I've never been a. I've never been on uh, the U Darvish bandwagon because I. I don't feel like he's done much for them. Yeah, he's an incredible pitcher, but he was just terrible. He's, he's taking mm-hmm. a lot of money from them. <laughs> I mean, even even guys like Clayton Kershaw got lit up in a game. And you know it happens, but yeah, it happened twice. Yeah, so you're hesitant to kind of embrace that long term. Mariners will take him though. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I wanted to uh, wanted to know how many uh, Thor spoilers you would like. None. Really? Yeah, none. Okay. Well, I don't. I I don't know what we're going to talk about now. Then. Mm, okay. Uh, you're probably going to go on Tuesday, right? At some point. Wow. Yeah, I I don't know. Tu- are well, you Tuesdays not excited? are different for me now, Jeff. I. Produce the coaches show, so I'm here until. Ooh, I'm here from eight to seven thirty. I think if Jerem Jordan had one major pet peeve, it would probably be spoiling a movie. Yeah, that he wants to see. Hmm. Okay. L- listen, I want to talk about it, but I, but not. I want to see it first. You like, what, what I mean? do you hate more than that? Than having someone be like, "Do you see that? It's amazing. This part's incredible." Certain <laughs> universities. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, can I tell you? Can I tell you how many post-credit scenes there are? Yeah, there are two. So you want to stay like the, knowing that. Yeah, we want to stay so till you know the to very stay. end, and just know that the second of the of the two is the better one. Okay. Well, that's up for debate. So now you really <laughs> no. Now you really want to stay till the end. I can't wait, dude. Yeah. When, when did you see it? Like, do you go use, like, a media pass, see it before it comes out situation? I, I actually just used my movie pass and saw it last night. Do you have movie pass? I've got one for me and for my wife. How is it? Uh, it's pretty amazing. Ten bucks a month. Yes. You can see go see a movie a day. A movie a day, but you can't see the same movie twice in the same month, correct? That's right. And uh, okay. I think they just changed their terms and conditions, so it basically made it sound like if you're going to the movies too frequently, then we'll offer you another offer or another package that you can take advantage of. But really, it just sounded like they'll charge you more if you do that. If you go too so, often? Uh, yeah. I think it made it what sound is too like often? that. That's up for uh, interpretation, I guess. So maybe once a week is probably fine, but I don't go every day. I, I think I'll be okay. Well, every other not, day. Why would you not pay 10 bucks a month to do this? 
I know. It's insane, right? And I think the price will go up eventually. Yeah. But uh, I'm just going to take advantage of it as long as I've got it. If you go see one movie, you get your money's worth. Exactly. Go see two, and now you've split that cut. If you were going to see two anyway, if you weren't going to see two, now you've added money. (laughs) Now, I know a lot of people are big on the Five Buck Tuesday. Yeah. I love it. But even then, like, you see two Tuesday movies, you've paid for your month. Exactly. Well, the great thing is you don't. You never have to worry about. Oh, I need to go on a Tuesday, or I need to go on like a Saturday morning. Just go whenever you want. And you would see some movies otherwise that you wouldn't usually pay for. Yeah, probably. I've got the monthly pass, so yeah, I'll go see this movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, in just the little bit of time that we have left, I know that you guys have a show coming up here in just four minutes and twenty seconds. What's coming up on your show? I assume you're talking about BYU Fresno State. Ah, uh, yes. The case for BYU football and a win in Fresno. Or will they win in Fresno? And which player does Dennis Pitta, the former All-American, think is the key to victory for BYU against Fresno State? Plus, Jerem's favorite, Know the Foe. Yeah, we're going to play Know the Foe. That's one of my favorite uh, <laughs> games that we play. So we're going to mix it up. Ben Bagley, our producer, will uh, quiz us on <laughs> trivia about the city of Fresno and or Fresno State University. <laughs> It's very fun. We play goofy music, and it's awesome. Wow. Right down our alley. This will definitely be the most exciting thing happening in Fresno. I can promise you that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Saturday night is going to be lit. Well, have fun, and and go Cougars. We'll see if they can pull off the big W. All right. Thanks, Jeff. The big W. Nice reference. Yeah. Thank you. It's a mad, 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 mad world. See that movie. I love that movie. Yeah. So uh, with just a little bit of time that we have left here, we're going to give you our panning for good segment here, as we like to do. There's good in them dire hills. (laughs) You know, with all the options for entertainment this weekend, whether it's Thor, Ragnarok, or Stranger Things Season 2 on Netflix, I'm going to say the thing that I'm looking forward to the most is reading a book. What? Jeff, reading a book? Well, I recently watched this movie, and I've only read this book once, but I'm super excited to revisit it because I've just checked it out from the library. I'm going to have my wife work on her Christmas stocking while I sit down and read her The Princess Bride, the book. So excited because that's actually part of the movie is a grandfather sitting down to read the book to his grandson. It's a very tender moment. I think there's a lot of tender moments that can come from reading books, and I'm excited to take another crack at this book and get a little deeper into all the characters. You get all the backstories and just so much more detail that you don't get in the movie. But as far as movies go, this is about as perfect as it gets, in my opinion. One of my favorite movies. This is the reason why you go see movies. Movies like The Princess Bride. Anyway, that's going to do it for us here on Screen Cleaning. We'll be back next week. uh, BYU Sports Nation is coming up next.